leftovers, or the DMV, or house cleaning, or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. From the era that brought you names like Chamberlain, Russell, and West. To Chamberlain, he's got it! Jerry West made it from the other side of the mid-court strike! To the glory days of Magic and Kareem. Abdul-Jabbar is on the brink of an NBA all-time record. From a time where last-second shots were expected. Here comes Kobe. From way outside. Got it! Oh, man! Gets it to LeBron. For three for the win! Yes! LeBron James! And rings were handed out like candy. Here's Jordan! It's Duncan Dynasty with your host, Garrett Bougay, and it starts right now. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty, and I am very excited to welcome back my co-host from a brief hiatus, and uh, uh, I'm also extremely excited to announce that he is a fellow Sports Business Classroom alum, Corbin Ford. Thanks for uh, coming on, as always, and uh, congratulations on being the class of SBC in 2020. Thank you, one, for that amazing intro. And two, I'm just, I'm happy not only to be here as always, but, man, to join the ranks, be with you and so many other friends of mine who have done this before, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Like, this is, that's cool to finally say, yeah, an alum. How crazy is that? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, happy happy for you to join the club. It's an exclusive group and uh, a group I'm, I'm proud and I'm sure you are proud to be a part of. Uh, but uh, for this episode, since uh, we're recording this on a, a Saturday night, so basically all eight series have played through three games, so I thought this would be a, a pretty good time to... to discuss kind of how these series are going, how they've differed from our uh, expectations going in, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll probably discuss some series uh, for a longer period of time than others, but Corbin, why don't you get us kick-started and uh, uh, pick the series that you're most excited to, to talk about? I mean, listen, this is, okay, so this is tough, because there's two. Obviously, there's you know, the one that we were going to get to, that, that's, I mean, I might as well just bear, not bury the lead here, uh, talk about Thunder and Rockets, but as a Lakers fan, I, it, it would not It would be who of me to at least bring up the Lakers and their interesting um, series against Portland and the different, um, already, multitude of cross-matches, switches, and, and, and the word I'm looking for is, I forget the word I'm looking for, but basically, you know, first game, 
counteracting and reacting and, and the different personnel and uh, game adjustments, that's the word, that have really made the series a little more interesting than even we had already thought, given the matchup. Yeah, as we're, as we're talking right now, the Lakers uh, are up 93-82 with just under a minute left in the third quarter, uh, and they've actually put up a 40-point third quarter so far. Uh, so they have definitely stepped it up in the second half. But yeah, the, uh, the series currently tied at 1-1. But yeah, by the time this uh, this pod will be heard, uh, it'll it'll likely be one of these teams up 2-1. But yeah, it, it has been fascinating. You know, the, the big adjustment here in Game 3 for Terry Stotts and the Blazers, you know, given the fact that they they do not have a healthy Zach Collins. Uh, and they, they've started Wendell Gabriel the first couple of games, but this game they went with Whiteside as basically the, or I guess Nurkic at the four and Whiteside at the five. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, this Lakers team, because they don't have, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of off-the-dribble threats other than really LeBron, and even he, he's a guy that I think you're content firing away from downtown, the Blazers can can play those two big guys and and not get punished too much defensively. That is something that I've noticed uh, right along with you, and, and you're right. It's the it's adjusting to the Lakers, the style that they like to play, and how that's worked on their end. That it's even uh, I thought this would be a disadvantage for the for the Blazers. I really did because I'm thinking, okay, you know, especially with the injury to Collins, that having to adjust means going to Whiteside a little bit more and him getting in a foul trouble along with Nurkic, you know, platooning there, um, Wing and Gabriel as well. I just didn't see this as something that would work um, either to the, the Blazers' advantage or, or at least to a stalemate. And honestly, it's been surprising and, and, and just frankly something I hadn't even registered in terms of how the Lakers' personnel and how they like to play almost plays right into a shorthanded Blazers hands. Um, because you're right. They're able to get away with it because you're going to have at least two bigs on the floor for LA at any point in time. They're not going super small. They haven't done AD at the five, which is something I've been really, you know, at least privately, wondering why they wouldn't do that. Slide LeBron, Kuzma, and then either Caruso and KCP or KCP and Danny Green and, and, and do that with them. But instead, it seems like they've just been able to get all types of advantages, the Blazers here, because they can adjust in those ways, and then they can also go small and even bring in guys like Anthony Simon, and and for lack of a certain extent, kind of get away with it. Yeah, um, the the other the, the other challenge, though, despite the fact that the Blazers have been able to survive defensively with lineups with Whiteside and Nurkic out there, and they've even been able to survive defensively with the highly flammable trio of of Whiteside, Carmelo, and uh, Hazonia that absolutely got eviscerated on the defensive end during the reseeding games. The issue, though, also you know on the offensive end that you know you, you talk about that game two defeat. And obviously the Lakers were able to hit more shots in that game too after going just 5 of 32 from downtown in game one. But, uh, you know, with the Blazers basically sizing up to match L.A., they've kind of, uh, you know, gone against what has made them so successful by really spreading the floor and a lot of times playing mellow at the at the power forward position and, and getting four shooters on the floor. Yeah, and, and that's been only... I think the shooters that you mentioned on the floor just kind of cut into the Lakers' weakness here has only uh, brought up more of an issue on the Lakers' side because when they have shooters, regardless of 
Arsenal iterations of that, whether that be um, Kuz and KCP or Danny Green up until just after game two or just around the game two, or even then they knocked down 10, but they think we're like 10 or 37. The Lakers shooting hasn't been something that is a strength for them. And this has been in the bubble already. Um, and I'm, I'm kind of just taking this and going in a different direction because you brought shoes on Portland that brought on my mind. But Portland's been, their shot is carried. And the Lakers has it, so you have a strength floor on the other end that is pushed to the breaking point reacting to Portland's defense and how both Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum are bombing away, well, more Damian Lillard than McCollum, from 30-plus feet um, and forcing the defense to, to start their pressure early. Uh, and this is something I've noticed that's been an extra issue for Portland. They don't have, and we know this going in, but they didn't have a, a single uh, straight matchup for uh, Damian Lillard because KCP can kind of do it, but he's been getting cooked. Alex Caruso, for all his defensive strengths, is just too slow. And so when you get those guys, uh, a screen, even the threat of a screen, just to enable a quick crossover, you know, into an open uh, rhythm three for Lillard, that, that's been cooking the Lakers uh, for much of the time, at least on the offensive end for Portland, when they've had success. Yeah, and that game one, especially in the fourth quarter of game yeah. one, Dame went nuts and hit that shot from the, the logo uh, <laughs> that uh, that definitely got me off the couch, for sure. Um but, uh, yeah, in that game two, I think the Lakers did a much better job of showing up high and and uh, taking away those uh, pull-up threes from Lillard. And, again, part of the reason you can do that and, and get away with it if you're L.A. and, and pressing up and potentially giving up a uh, giving up penetration to Lillard is that the Lakers have multiple rim protectors on those lineups. So if you have one big stepping up to Dame, you still have another at the rim. And then also because the the Blazers have have put two centers out there essentially, they don't have quite as much spacing when Dame gets that penetration and, and tries to dish it off. Yeah, it's it's, it's almost working in a an opposite way in that regard because you're right. The reaction to that gravity is is just strikingly different. Yeah, and uh, I don't like to make these uh, sort of discussions uh, real simple, but but sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes it is that case, and, and for me, I think a big part of the, the change between games one and two was just the play of Anthony Davis. You know, Davis went 8 of 24 in that game one, and, uh, you know, got again, sometimes didn't show up high enough to, to, to stop Damian Lillard's pull-up three. In game two, he was much more disciplined defensively. I thought he was much better offensively, especially knocking down outside jump shots. And when he's got that going and has kind of got the the uh, the all-around game going, uh, the, the Lakers are, are tough to deal with. Exactly. And he's, uh, in my mind, is as much of a rhythm shooter as many, you know, in the league where he likes to go to that mid-range shot, even if that's not really his optimal strength. He is no LaMarcus Aldridge from out there, per se. But getting that shot, getting ready to make it, kind of opens up other things for him because then, you know, he's able to take guys off the dribble. And go into that shot. He cooked Nurkic um, as recording tonight. He did it in, in game two as well. Just being able to use that shiftiness for you know for a big that he has to kind of create separation, go into step backs, and he's still a monster off the pick and roll and and, and putting um, rebounds back up. And that is something that you're right. He's been a lot more aggressive and is kind of going to one of the, the single strengths uh, alongside. I guess we'll talk about LeBron in a minute, but alongside LeBron in the case that we thought the Lakers just clearly had over. The Blazers, that they had no one player that was optimal for the Anthony Davis matchup. 
guys in Nurkic who are stronger than him or bigger than him, but he is big enough as a big to bang and post up. He's uh, pretty decent there. He's a decent enough shooter to stretch out to three at this stage of his career. And off the dribble, there's no big on the Blazers that can hang with him, either because they're just too slow or, in Carmelo's uh, case, both, slow and older. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Davis is a little bit predictable on the block. You know, there's there's been times where, you know, he, he prefers to drive left along the baseline when he catches it on the, the left block. Uh, and the Blazers have, have done a good job scouting that and trying to take that away. And, yeah, when he's not, uh, you know, when he's not hustling, doing all those little things, running, uh, you know, running the floor in transition and getting easy looks and, and you know, kind of settling for jumpers, it can look kind of ugly for him. But, you know, I think LeBron, uh, you know, to his credit, has done a good job when the Lakers have, have outplayed the Blazers in this series of pushing the tempo, getting easy looks for guys before the, the Blazers' uh, half-court defense is set. It's funny that I'm, I'm having to say seriously in a series that the Lakers are, have to get out of uh, uh, challenging the Blazers' half-court defense because it's not good, but uh, certainly the, the Blazers' transition defense is even worse than their half-court defense. And uh, when Davis when Davis can get some easy looks, get some putbacks, get some uh, lob dunks, he starts feeling himself, and then those outside shots start to fall. Yeah, it is one that one feeds directly into the other, and it all starts with the aggressiveness that he goes forth at the beginning. That'll kind of set the tone, you know? Um, even when you look in, and there was a joke I saw on Twitter where, you know, you can think he's having a bad game, look up, and it's like 17-8, you know, 7 percent shooting, whatever the case may be. He's one of those guys that kind of feed off of that and one unlocks the other. There's games when his jump shot isn't working and, you know, you'll get 8 to 24 nights and then you have to kind of rely on getting to the free throw line, which is something he can still do just enough. Um, and by that, I'm, I'm being very, very sarcastic. He gets the line pretty effectively when he's playing aggressive, but when his jump shot is also working, that unlocks the other two. And that's something that's still a matchup issue for Portland. Um, that's not the only weapon the Lakers can rely on, per se, but that's something that they know they can go to um, and it has only one who can stop that is pretty much himself. Yeah, the Blazers don't have good matchups for Davis or LeBron, really, in this series. No. Uh, they, they are at least able to, again, with uh, with putting two centers at the basket, at least try to prevent them from just having a, a free path to the rim, uh, which they, they, uh, they can just dominate teams getting to the bucket uh, over and over again. But Portland is at least force them to uh, to hit some jump shots. Um, but, uh, you know, speaking to the Blazers, I think this series would be so much better and, and so much more competitive. And I, I, I still think the Lakers are, are going to take this in five or six, but um, I think this would be a, uh, a series that Portland could legitimately have a, have a decent shot of winning if Trevor Ariza was, uh, was in the bubble. I have to agree with you. I was thinking that, too, having someone who, even at 35 and a step slower, is still a guy who can capably guard LeBron as best as one can do such is huge. Um, and right now, you know, it's a glaring mismatch where you either go with Melo, which works until you remember that he can't or, you know, he's just incapable of going around screens, or you go to Gary Trent Jr., who, while yes, you know, he's very much one who can, um, you know, be active and, and, and be pesky, pick up full court, and it's just a really good defender. I've gotten, I've, I've gained a lot of respect for Gary Trent, you know, over the bubble and in the playoff game so far. But he's also giving up a lot of size and a lot of strength to LeBron, and when he gets into foul trouble, not only does it hurt the Blazers in general just for a LeBron matchup, but it hurts 
it hurts. Um, it hurts the Blazers in general because you're losing a defender who is great on other spots as well. So that's something that's interesting. Um, I looking looking at that, I, I just figured that hey, you bring in Trevor. At least now you have a platoon of guys that you can use to go back and forth alongside LeBron. Give him different looks. Give him different matchups. One guy can be like Melo, someone who knows and played alongside him for a while. You know, anticipate moves as best you can. Then you have a guy, you know, in, in Gary Trent who's all over, who's, you know, pesky and just throwing LeBron off his rhythm. You have Trevor Ariza, who's kind of a bit of both. He's not really going to lean on you physically, but he's someone who's going to hold his own and play a type of defense. Without that, you're left with suboptimal matchups for LeBron no matter where you go, whether that is Trent, whether that is Melo, or, you know, help us if it's Gabriel or any of the other Portland bigs. Because you're not going to put McCollum or Lillard on him at any stretch. Yeah, it's amazing that, uh, you know, with, with Zach Collins out of the rotation, Terry Stotts found a guy that uh, to replace him that is more foul-prone uh, in, uh, in Gabriel. But, uh, yeah, I agree with you. I think Trent Jr. has been, has been uh, you know, again, given the fact that he's giving up, I don't know, what is it, uh, a couple of inches and, and probably 80 pounds of, uh, of size to LeBron. I think he's done a reasonable job of just trying to stay in front and, and not completely get bullied to the basket. Um, but, uh, you know, that that's another thing that I think the Lakers have done a solid job of is Gary Trent is, is a guy that uh, everybody has come to know in Orlando because of his outside shooting. And, and while he's still shooting decent from three in this series, he's not getting the kind of attempts that he was getting in the reseeding games. Yeah, and I mean, some of that's just the quality of, of opponent now. But a lot of that is just off of the personal matchups and looks, because you're right. That same type of shot and rhythm that just isn't that just isn't there. Those same types of openings that you were kind of taking advantage of feasting on the four are no longer as readily apparent. So I was going to say, just in general, how would you? And this Laker obviously center question: How would you look at the play of LeBron? And this is weird because, of course, I asked this on a night where he has 31 points on nine of 13 shooting. But the last two games, he just hasn't looked great to me. And is that? of LeBron picking his spots? Is that more of LeBron, you know, playing in a situation like this right here where it's it's a it's a team thing kind of throwing him off? Because, you know, game two, 10, 7, and 7, that's good. He was a blowout, but it didn't look like 10, 7, and 7 we were cruising. They kept could use some points on LeBron. He was still pretty poor from the field. And then game one, you know, he did great. He was all over the place. The, 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 I think it was one of the first or one of the few uh, triple-double, I forget. Yeah, it was he was the first player. I was surprised that it was the first of this, but he was the first player ever to score 20 points and have 15 plus rebounds and 15 plus assists. And when I when I saw that, I'm like, you're telling me Magic Johnson never put up 20, 15, and 15 in a playoff game? Isn't that crazy? And I could have swore that he did that once against the Celtics in the 80s. I could have sworn, <laughs> and apparently not. That's the stat. Thank you, Gary. Because, but aside from that, he just hasn't looked. In my mind, at least. I mean, maybe the shots not going down is a big barometer for me and how I um, gauge LeBron's play. But it just hasn't seemed as, well, for lack of a better word, playoff LeBron. Yeah, I mean, you have to factor in that playoff LeBron, it's been two years since we've seen playoff LeBron. And uh, everyone... You know, everyone that was talking about, oh, he's going to be, he's still the best player in the league. He's better than Kawhi. My, my thought always was, well, let me see it. Because we've seen Kawhi as recently as last postseason 
dominate the NBA playoffs and dominate a lot of good teams. And yeah, it's been two full seasons. Le- you know, the uh, LeBron is 35 now. And yeah, he's he's still incredibly good. I still think, you know, even as good as Damian Lillard has been, I still think LeBron has been the best player on the floor in this series. Um, but yeah, when, when he doesn't have the jump shot going down, what he has to resort to is, is getting into the paint and, and drawing the drawing in the defense and, and trying to finish if he's got a one-on-one or or kick it out to shooters. And in that game one, you know, if, if all the all the Lakers role players are missing shots and, and you know, LeBron has always been a guy that I think is, is going to make the right play. Um, yeah. And, and so, yeah, if, if, you're, if your shooters are just missing, yeah, it's not going to look great, especially if LeBron can't then just uh, create from the outside and is not feeling his jump shot. But yeah, you know, we've we've seen him miss some inside shots that you would expect him to knock down. And again, I think that's just a matter of maybe not having the hang time that we used to see. Uh, But uh, yeah, you know, he's he's still been very, very good. But uh, yeah, if if, uh, I know you're a Laker fan, Corbin, I would be a bit concerned thinking that, okay, if if they're going to win a championship and not just get past Portland, LeBron's going to have to be the best player on the floor against the Clippers and against the Rockets and against potentially, uh, you know, the Bucks. And yeah. from what I've yeah. seen in this series, it's uh, it's a little bit questionable. No, I'm right there with you. And and I got to say real quick, just in the spirit of, of, of just truthfulness, in the spirit of uh, being transparent, I was totally on board of that. Playoff LeBron is still the best player in the NBA. That includes Kawhi, and I'm off that boat. Um, I think, you know, no offense to LeBron's play, Kawhi's has been, and we'll talk about him later, so I'm not going to really go too much into it, but it's a night and day difference. LeBron may have more of an ability to affect different facets of the game. LeBron, I mean, um, Kawhi is getting that way, though, and he's able to do it in such a more forceful way now. You know, it reminds me almost like a a prime LeBron back in Miami. Um, Probably less like passing awareness, but going back to where we were going with LeBron, you're right, it is something that I'm worried about, because that's a lot of of taxing on a guy like you said, 35 years a machine. You know he's been playing a while. It's it, 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 it's it's someone who, if anyone can do it, it's LeBron. But it's still a lot. And some of the strengths that I saw, namely, yeah, we had inconsistent shooting, but you know we have shooters. We have one of the more streaky ones, one of the best in Danny Green, and and, and you know J.R. Smith. I was kind of high on even with him being out the league for almost two years. Um, you know Kuzma, KCP, other guys. It, it to me, it wasn't that bad because I thought, okay. Shooters then will find their shot, but now I'm realizing that when you are out with an extended stretch, like some of these shooters, when they're called for an extended stretch, that impacts uh, the Lakers tremendously. And it's been ten games now, basically. Some of the seeding and into into this game right now, it's been something that this is extended, and that can be a problem because yeah, let's say you know they all get hot in a you know do or die. Game six against the Clippers. Congratulations, but a lot of it isn't on. There's not enough reliable shot making. That's that's kind of the thing. Deion Waiters. I mean, I'm not sure why at this point Coach Vogel prefers J.R. Smith over Waiters in this makeshift rotation that he's using right now with Rondo. You know, just coming back, but he does. That's just that's just what I've seen more J.R. minutes, even if that's nine or ten, than I've seen Deion Waiters. And the problem is J.R. Smith's shot making abilities were already on the decline. Even when, and when I say shot making, I mean self-created shot making abilities. We're already on the decline, even with the Cavs before he came to LA. And aside from that, Kuzma, you know, you can 
sink or swim with him, but you're doing a lot more sinking. Anthony Davis can do some, but that's not truly his. He's more of a finisher. He's not more of a creator. And then you have LeBron, and unless I'm missing someone, you got to fill me in because I, I, I don't see it, Garrett. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, again, with the Lakers playing that uh, traditional big, you know, you've got – uh, when you talk about those guys that LeBron could kick the ball out to, you know, if you're playing with a JaVale McGee and a, or a Dwight Howard at center, you're playing with Anthony Davis, who, again, is uh, not the greatest from three. You're talking about two other players on the floor that can pen- potentially hit shots. And, you know, we saw, I think, KCP was 0 for 9 in game one. Uh, Danny Green has kind of been hit or miss. But, yeah, like, when, when you only have two shooters surrounding that front court. Uh, though, both of those guys have to be on or else it's going to be a struggle. Yeah, exactly. And that's a lot of attention to put on them, especially when you're making matchups for the Lakers that are as much offensive dependent as they are defensive. Um, in terms of, you know, putting Caruso, whose outside shooting has not been great, you know, in for defensive purposes, even if he's not the ideal matchup for Damian Lillard McCullum because we cooked. And if that's the case, I can imagine, you know, the Rockets are going to be just, oh my God, the Rockets going to be a matchup. Win if the Lakers get there, just because everyone's going small, you know, everyone can go ISO, and a lot of them are, you know, Harden got his cadence that is destructible. You got athletes like Westbrook that are just nuclear athletes. It's something that you're right. When the Lakers win, I want to continue rambling too much about them, but the cracks that they kind of have against the Blazers that are small enough for them to paper over and really take this series in five, six games are going to be a lot more pronounced in later rounds. And, and, and there are a lot more concerns than I had originally imagined going into the postseason. Well, yeah, was there anything else about this series that you want to discuss before we move on to to the next one? Uh, no, I think I think we're all good on that one. Let's, let's keep it moving, Garrett. Your call. <laughs> okay, so, uh, yeah, I'll pick the one that I've been most excited to, to watch. And uh, you just brought them up, the Houston Rockets. Uh, taking on the Oklahoma City Thunder, it is now a 2-1 to series. And uh, I'll just mention as well that uh, I believe you picked, uh, did you pick the Rockets in 6? I did. And uh, I picked OKC in 7. And uh, <laughs> so this will be this will be fun to, uh, to, to uh, go back and forth on this series. Of course, OKC winning Game 3, a must-win game in overtime. And, uh, you know... Speaking to this series and, and why I uh, uh, thought OKC had a decent chance, you know, not only factoring in that I expected Russell Westbrook to miss at least three games, which he has, and it might even be more. I, I'm guessing it will be more. I think they said in the on the broadcast for Game 3 that Westbrook has started some light jogging, so it seems like he's still a ways away. Um, but, uh, you know, with his absence, with Eric Gordon missing a ton of time and just coming back and being a notoriously slow starter. I didn't think he was going to produce at as high of a level as the Rockets needed. Um, so, you know, given those two things, I thought it was going to be very focused on on James Harden just dominating and and, and the Thunder have a decent a decent stopper against him in, in Lou Dort. Uh, and, and we saw that in the last couple of games. Dort missed game one, but uh, he is a... He is a absolutely terrific defender even though he's an abysmal offensive player <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, the thing that uh, I guess the thing that has made this a little bit more in favor you know if I had to pick it now I would probably pick Houston in six or seven and the main difference for me has been a couple of things one has been the bench play of the Rockets you know the 
I don't think Jeff Green has had a better three-game stretch than he's just played in this series in his entire career. I mean, the guy is playing fantastic. Austin Rivers is giving them is giving them great minutes, and Ben McLemore looks like an absolute sniper. <laughs> uh, so, so all of a sudden, what I thought was kind of an average or maybe even below-average bench is is giving Mike D'Antoni great production. Um, yeah. And and then the other thing that's been that's uh, been a pleasant surprise if you're a Rockets fan is the defense. You know, all year long they've been kind of a middle of the road defensive unit. Um, you know, even last year when they lost or when they didn't have defensive coordinator Jeff Bizdelic at the start of the year, they were really terrible. And then he came back and joined the team for the second half of the season, and they they kind of rounded back into form. But I thought you know not having him around for the postseason would hurt them, but no. Their defense has been fantastic. It really has. They follow the ball on a string. They're attached. It's been one of the single more, um, I guess, defining uh, out-of-nowhere factors in the Rockets' success thus far. That has been, I mean, Austin Rivers spoke about it. Other members of the Rockets have spoke about how their defense has been playing very, very well. But it really has. They've been attached. Some of that I think is just, it seems like the Thunder were just absolutely flummoxed by the fact that the Rockets are switching everything and that, no, Chris Paul, you're not going to go to feast on a big because guess what? We haven't had a big since February. You know, like, it just seems as if the Thunder really didn't know what to make of, but also the defense for the Rockets has just been so great. They've been all over. They've been reflective of the offense. They're switching great. They've been kind of um, doing a Gulliver's uh, travels to uh, Stephen Adams, just kind of taking a guy who's a behemoth compared to these matchups and really making him a little more of a non-factor than you would think, um, just considering how um, just big Stephen Adams is. But one thing I've enjoyed, and you kind of talk about it for a second, but Jeff Green has played so, so well for the Rockets. Um, I mean, he's been someone who's been able to be a a floor spacer. Um, He's been someone who's able to be a playmaker as a big in space, someone who's been able to rebound pretty effectively. Um, he fits in so many lines. He makes a lot of this stick together. He's like the perfect glue to this Rockets team. And I would only imagine having a Jeff Green two years ago with the Rockets if he was playing this way. Because then again, the Jeff Green experience, everyone knows what the Jeff Green experience is. But with that being said, it is, this is, like, I feel like he's one of the keys. I feel like he is single-handedly one of the keys to this working because he, he sustained even bad shooting stretches for the Rockets through the three games. You know, it just... Steady, efficient numbers and great play, but his role, I think, has been so, so effective. Yeah, and I think, you know, his his production, Austin Rivers' production, and, and even though Eric Gordon is four for twenty-six from three, you know, I, oh, I, I was I was correct in, in in predicting that he wasn't going to shoot the ball well in this series. Um <laughs> But uh, he has still looked good in terms of uh, you know, being an on ball creator and driving and and uh, getting to the bucket. So they, they really haven't missed Westbrook as much because of those three guys being able to step up. And uh, I've got to ask you this. I know you're a big uh, Westbrook fan, Corbin, but uh, uh, are the Rockets better on defense because Russ is not there? Garrett, why do you do this? <laughs> like, as soon as you said you know I'm a Westbrook fan, I'm like, hit me. Listen, I think for in this series, yes. Uh, you know what, darn it, darn you, Garrett. Listen, Russell Westbrook's physical attributes make him, or may have, give him the potentials, give the potentials, <laughs> make me stutter here. <laughs> Russell Westbrook's physical attributes give him the potential of being a very good defender. It's his lackadaisical awareness on the 
on the other end, that make him an ineffective defender, in my opinion. Um, I think that there's a system maybe with him being out, being able to watch how attentive all of the personnel for the Rockets are, that he can adopt that. And if he does, I think you have a superior athlete at one of those guard positions to enact that same type of defensive attention activity that the Rockets are looking for. But, in general, I just went around that way to say, yeah, right now the Rockets are, are better without Russell Westbrook on the defensive end. He would create a lot more open looks for them with the gravity he, he brings on the offensive end. Though. I do have to let you know that, just just to end on a Russell-centric uh, finish. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, the... Um... You know the the switching has been has been really good. The Thunder haven't been able to get too many just easy baskets off of uh, mistakes by by the Houston defenders. And yeah, that game one, it just felt like you you mentioned it that it just felt like um, Billy Donovan and the and the whole the whole roster just was not ready to play. Dennis Schroeder, of course, left the bubble I think at one point and and. Uh, did not seem at 100% at first. I thought in Game 3, Dennis Schroeder started to look more like his usual self with that uh, explosive quickness. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but, but yeah, that opening game, the, the Thunder kind of just didn't really have a game plan offensively. They kind of just passed it around the perimeter. I mean, against the switch, you've got to not only try to attack the weak links, uh, you know, try and attack the, the likes of James Harden. Um, you know, Robert Covington is one of their better help defenders. Put him on the ball and attack him so then they don't have him helping on the, on the backside of the play. Um, they, they, they didn't do that at all in game one. They didn't ever give Steven Adams the ball at the elbow and, and run split cut action to try to, uh, you know, slip some screens and, and get some easy buckets. Uh, the only the only guy that came to play it seemed like in game one was uh, was Danilo Gallinari for the Thunder. Um, but as this series has gone on, you know I've seen them do a better job of, of hunting hunting some some uh, some weak links on that Rockets defense. They've they've done a better job of uh, attacking as soon as they uh, draw that switch to a drive right away. You know that's that's another way to to attack a switching defense is you're already on the move just keep going and that guy that's switching onto you is stationary he's already might he already might be a step behind if you're just going full throttle from the get-go uh they they seem to have done a lot better job of that and uh you know Shea Gilgis Alexander as well after just like it seemed like he wasn't even on the floor in game one is uh is starting to play play better the the only thing I still think the Thunder I still think there's some adjustments Billy Donovan can make to improve the the Thunder's chances in this series and that is playing more lineups with four shooters on the floor and it actually took overtime of Game Three a Stephen Adams injury for them to finally play the lineup that I think might be their best lineup for this matchup which is the you know their three guards with Chris Paul, Shea Gilgis Alexander, Dennis Schroeder, Danilo Gallinari, their sharp shooting forward, and Lugans Dort, their best defender on James Harden. Uh, that that lineup I think would be pretty great, especially if they stop uh, you know spacing Dort to the three point line because he cannot make an outside <laughs> shot. Just put him, just play him like he's a, a center and put him in the Stephen Adams dunkers spot. Some changes, you know, made some adjustments that have been uh, readily ascertained, and you're like, okay, you know what? Thank 
more, a lot like he played Andre Roberson in 2017, where if you did the exact same thing, use him more as a big man, kind of go smaller, you have more of a chance in certain areas. Whereas, you know, he, he played him the same way, like, oh, we're going to space the floor with him, and you're just going to be insistent on this philosophy or this style of play that just isn't working. Yeah, and, and again, I think there's this um, old-school, traditional um, coaching sort of uh, logic that's in his head that he needs to play a traditional center in this series. And Stephen Adams, frankly, has given them nothing. Uh, you know, I thought that he would be able to dominate on the offensive glass. Credit the Rockets. They've done a really good job of surrounding him. And, and Oklahoma City, also without Robertson on the floor, they literally only send Stephen Adams to the offensive glass. So it's constantly him against four Rockets fighting for rebounds. And Houston players are just able to tip the ball away from him. So he has not had uh, the uh, impact on the glass that you would hope. And given that he is, uh, he, he appears really slow defensively as well, there's just not a really good reason for him to be out there, especially when you've got another guy in Dort who is providing an, you know, immense defensive value for you, but also is a non-shooter. And as soon as against this Rockets defense where they sag off of, uh, you know, non-scoring threats, as soon as you have multiple guys out there that they can leave and, and help off of, it, it clogs things up significantly. Yeah. And it just, it's just not conducive to the optimal Thunder lineups. And that's just the bottom line. As good as a player as Stevens has been, as, I mean, as solid a player as Stevens has been, as much as he's contributed, what he has contributed over over the year, great. It's just not for him. And, and that's fine. If you're trying to get out this series, you have to play, have the matchup in some ways with the Rockets. And you have to try to beat them at their game in a certain extent. And, and whatever you do, you're just not going to be able to do it with Adams on the floor. And it's not one. It's almost like when they do a uh, lead with uh, with a um, comeback with the bench for a team, and they want to stick with the guys who got us there. This isn't that situation. Like, like, like we get it. You know, he's great, but right now playing him is just not. It's not working for what you need to do to counteract Houston. You know, it may get you minutes, but even even on tonight's win that the Rock at the Thunder had, uh, Stephen Adams wasn't a huge factor in that. Right. And especially given that I think Darius Baisley has looked reasonably good in the series. Uh, you know, Abdul Nader is a guy that can, can knock down shots. Um, so they've got some options there. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't mean you have to play Steven Adams zero minutes. But, you know, um, if you're talking about at the end of the game, as we saw in overtime when it mattered, that, that lineup where they, they downsized to match Houston and said, you know what? Uh, our five smalls can beat your five smalls. I think they can, but it's just a matter of Donovan committing to it. I mean, I disagree, obviously, just by where we're going with the teams, but I think that you're right that OKC's five best players, I mean, for this lineup in general, are, are, are of, their, of their smalls. And you have three, I would say, with Russell out of the best. Let's say you took all the guards, line them up. I'd say three of the best five guards for the Rockets. Three of the best guards between both three of the best guards between both teams. I would give three of them to OKC. I mean, in whatever order, and, and I mean between Harden obviously and Chris Pondam, I think in numbers you're right. Your three best players throughout the season have been, you know, that dreaded three guard lineup. And and if you go to that and bring in a guy like Bays and stretch the floor really well, um, so far and played super strong, you know, up to this point, 
I mean, I, I don't know what you've been watching because I watched in Game 3 James Harden uh, resort to posting up because he didn't have any other way of attacking Lou Dort. Uh, yeah, no, you, I mean, well, he had the mid-range. He just doesn't take it. Like, yeah. Like, uh, some of it, I know what you mean. Some of it's just that philosophy that t- if it was 2010 um, Harden in terms of his shot selection, I would think he'd have a much easier time cooking. But because it's either get to the 3 or get to the line, he's trying to either generate stuff to get there because Dort's a very good defender. Shots full hard to be taking. He just and that's something that's annoying me. He just won't take them. He had one today where he had a, a nice mid range shot and said he passed out for a three. And it's like take the shots you're given, regardless of them. You're a shot maker. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm fired up on Harden. I'm sorry. You're right. <laughs> I, I don't want to disrespect Dort. If I, if I apologize, I beg your pardon for doing that. Well, I mean, and I, I, I mean, it it has been a small sample so far, but uh, from what I've seen. You know, this guy is is really incredible in terms of not only he's got the size so that, you know, there was there was one play late in the fourth quarter where Dort was out of the game and Harden got uh, Schroeder switched on to him and he drove left and Schroeder cut him off, but Harden was just able to power through him and finish with a left-hand layup. Um, Dort is strong and thick and so, you know, if he cuts you off, you're not going any further. <laughs> Um, and, and he moves his feet so well that he was consistently um, cutting Harden off from, from getting all the way to the rim. And yeah, you just you just hardly ever see James Harden actually resort to a back down to try to create offense. Uh, uh, I could probably count that on one hand how many times I saw that this season. Uh, and, and we saw that on multiple occasions in this Game 3. But yeah, you know, um, again, I think... The, the reason I would probably pick Houston still to, to win this series after originally picking OKC is just, you know, getting off to a 2-0 lead. Expecting any team to win four out of five is, is really tough. But I will say, you know, each and every game in this series, after looking terrible in game one, they looked somewhat better in game two. Uh, you know, they, they seemed to figure some things out, and then they just had a couple of terrible offensive droughts for a crucial four- or five-minute stretch in that game two. Um, but, you know, in this game three, the offense continued to look better. And with Dort out there, the defense looks like they're going to at least be able to hold Houston below their, their typical offensive production. Oh, yeah. The Thunder do have just that type of stingy um, uh, uh, personnel that I think you're right. They will do just that. And, and, and I mean, that will make for an interesting series. I still think, in the end, you know, the Rockets will, will get taps. Obviously, I think you agree with me now. You're turning kind of that way to me now. But the Thunder, by by, by, all, by all of our accounts, we're definitely going to make it tough. There was no way this was going to be just a, a sweep. Yeah, it's just such a drag when a team just completely lays an egg in that game one. And it felt more like game two was the opening game of the series. Um, yeah, 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 it really did. It was like the wake-up game because the first one was just, it was, it was like an aberration. We had a few of those game ones that just felt like, okay, one team just didn't wake up. One team wasn't here. Lakers, we'll get to it with the Bucks. We had with Thunder, where it's like you just woke up and said, hey, we're playing a game having done no research on how the team plays, having not understood the personnel on the floor. And then you get whopped, and then you're like, oh, wow, maybe I should make some adjustments and, like, you know, take this team seriously in the postseason. <laughs> yeah. Um, it'll be it'll be fascinating to see, you know, the, the if those uh, Houston bench players can continue to pr- produce at this level. Uh, also, it'll be... Uh, It'll be important, I think, for Houston for Eric Gordon to at some point find his shot. You know, if he's 
four for his next 26 in the next three games, I, I, I could imagine this series going to seven. Um, exactly. So, uh, yeah, it'll be fascinating. Anything more from uh, – oh, I guess I guess I, I should mention Chris Paul as well in, in, you know, speaking to how awful the Thunder were in that game when I thought Chris Paul was awful in games one and two, and I'm a big Chris Paul fan. I've always, you know, stuck up for him. Uh, I think he's one of the most underrated players in NBA history. But in games one and two, he was bad, uh, you know, especially offensively. You know, he just would not he, – he was not willing to commit to just uh, turning on the afterburners and, and trying to attempt to drive past a guy. Um, and, and you know, you, you, you have to do that as a guard against a switching defense. You occasionally have to, uh, you know, commit to – going into third gear and, and trying to draw in some defense and, and get the defense moving a little bit. There was too many possessions where I saw Paul would just, he would just be dribbling at the top of the key. He would get a screen. The Rockets would switch. He, he would just continue to just do a stationary dribble and then would just pass to the teammate. And it's like, he, you didn't create any advantage there. And uh, that was, that was really frustrating. But I will say in game three, like, like pretty much all of the the, uh, the Thunder guards, Chris Paul was much better. He actually committed to driving more. He he got to that uh, mid range jumper in isolation and knocked down a bunch of those. Um, but uh, but yeah, I I, uh, I couldn't go without mentioning how, how how disappointed I was in CP3 in those first couple of games. Yeah, I, it's been weird. The lack of aggressiveness in general has been something that, like you said, has been it, it's it's it's. I'm glad he's kind of waking up a little bit more. You know, he had, he had a pretty uh, strong game three. He, he spoke as much to it, saying that he would, you know, kind of come back. So yeah, he was, and he was, he was amazing in the overtime, knocking down three triples, including one ridiculous one where he he kind of uh, was facing the sideline and spun midair as the shot clock was winding down to kind of hit the triple that that put the game away. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I mean, we can only hope to see more of that play moving forward from him because again, that's kind of one of the Thunder's best chances having a strong Chris Paul in addition to everything they're kind of putting together, even though it's going to be an unloading effort to <laughs> I mean, yeah, I uh, one of the reasons I like the Thunder going in is, you know, despite the fact that I didn't think any individual player on the roster was like some amazing isolation player, I thought the likes of Gallinari, Chris Paul, Shea Gilgis, Alexander, and Schroeder all are decent to good in isolation, and I thought they could kind of take turns attacking the the Rockets' defense and just finding the weakest link. You know, give give Schroeder the ball at the top of the key, attacking Harden for five possessions, then give it to Shea and do the same sort of thing over and over again. Um, yeah, the the thing that has been that has been challenging is the fact that Donovan has continued to put out those lineups with multiple non-shooters that the Rockets are able to just really pack the paint and and do a really good job with that. Yeah, so it. Um, given that I, uh, I I don't have much confidence in, in Donovan as as I don't think you do either, um, making the right lineup decisions as uh, as we move forward with this series, I, I do I, I am now in favor of the Rockets, but but I do still think it's going six or seven. Okay, that, that, that's fair. I, I agree. Just because I mean the Thunder have just too much talent in general. And it's not, this is the thing, I love Coach Donovan. I just don't think he's the guy to make adjustments on the fly. He's a decent coach. I mean, you don't take the talent he's had, and, I mean, yeah, I guess you kind of do. But, you know, he's a competent NBA coach. I think he's a, a pretty decent NBA coach in general. But he's just not great with adjustments on the fly, especially ones that almost seem obvious, you know? And so, in this case, the Thunder, 
they already got one. They'll definitely take another one, I think. Um, I, I said, you know, I said in, in, in six, so I'm banking on them taking another one. But ultimately, no. The Rockets just have too much. I don't think that the Thunder are going to make the, the, the changes necessary in time to counteract that. And at the end of the day, the ace in the hole for me is Russell Westbrook. However we feel, if, even if he's able to play. You know what I mean? So we'll just have to see. Yeah, and uh, maybe it'll it'll end up being a happy accident that Adams got hurt and Donovan got to look at the best lineup he could throw out there in overtime. And uh, so, so yeah, it, we'll see. But, yeah, that has been a really fun series to watch. And, and even if uh, if Houston goes on to win this, at least Chris Paul had one game in this series where uh, – he uh, he kind of got to say this is what you uh, this is what you chose to give away here, Rockets. <laughs> but exactly. uh, yeah, so Corbin, let's uh, let's move on to the next series. What's uh, what's another series that you've been kind of fascinated by so far? You know, let's talk Boston Philadelphia. Okay, uh, I mean, this is really just kind of us putting our uh, autopsy report. Well, you know, while the patients are on the table, but I just want to know what what. And I don't, this is the thing, I don't really know what to make of it aside from not having the talent necessary as far as backward play, even though I feel like Shake Milton's played well and, and so is Josh Richardson. I think, boiling it down, the reason why the Philadelphia 76ers are going to go home is because of two guys who are uh, a significant part of the 76ers payroll not performing at all, and that's Tobias Harris and Al Horford. And also just the weird inability to get the ball to Joel and beat down the post where he needs it the most. But uh, I, I know there's some more nuance there, and, that, and that's why I got to turn to you. I need some help. Yeah. Uh, speaking to Tobias Harris, this was a tweet uh, I saw from Jackson Frank. Tobias Harris has 43 points on 49 shots in this series. He's made zero threes in three games, has taken only 11 three-point attempts, and has just 15 free throw attempts. His true shooting percentage, Corbin, get uh, you know, brace yourself. Oh no. 38.7%. Oh no. I mean, I know it's been bad, but <sighs> that, that's that, that's what it's been. Like I know it's been bad, but this is this is horrific. Yeah, um and and speaking to Horford, you know, he was not very good and and they were not very good with with him on the floor in games one and two, but you know, my my thought going into the beginning of this year, and uh, you know, I, I originally picked Philadelphia to to make it to the NBA Finals. Obviously, don't believe that now, but the the thought process was that this could just be an absolutely dominant defensive team, and I also thought going into this series, you know, I picked the Celtics in six. Um, but I thought the, the the Sixers could still be pretty dominant defensively with, you know, with Embiid and Horford out there, you know, all season long, you know, those lineups have been bad because they've just been atrocious offensively, but they have been elite defensively when those two bigs are out there. And they were really good defensively in game three today on, on Saturday. Um, but, you know, if... If Tobias Harris, a guy that uh, you know has been a, a decent three-point shooter in his career, is just providing zero spacing for you, you know, of course those lineups with Embiid and Horford are gonna, you know, they're, they're just going to, to struggle to score. Yeah, and that's honestly just been what's happening. I mean, some of it, I think, to me, comes down to just shot making, but part of it is that I think. Well, here's the thing: the personnel then in Philadelphia is enough to. I, I don't think I remember Philadelphia. I don't think I remember saying that Philadelphia's gonna win. And I gotta look at my on my real quick cold takes, but what I do remember is that I thought Philadelphia had enough to at least make it competitive, even without 
and you had a couple of good halves for Philadelphia, a couple of quick quarters, I mean, for Philadelphia, but I'm not even seeing what I thought I would in that. And I think that's what I'm more, lack of a better word, shocked by, you know? Yeah, I mean, games one and three were were uh, you know a couple possession games in the final couple of minutes. So you know they I, I don't want to I mean yes it's three zero and whenever a series is three zero you you tend to think that it's a blowout but you know it, yeah that you know a shot here or there you know if to, if Tobias Harris is able to make one or two threes a game you know they they might have stolen games one or three, um, but uh, but yeah his play has been abysmal. Um, they uh, and yeah the the lack of even just a post entry passer to get the ball into Embiid you mentioned it has been really frustrating and also you know one of the things to 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 uh, to give Boston a little credit here in uh, in how they've played defense uh, they've done a really good job of digging down at the post and especially Marcus Smart that guy is absolutely phenomenal at uh, you know. Poking in, making that post-up guy as he's dribbling uncomfortable, and then he'll he'll sometimes come down aggressively, and he's got very active hands. There were a couple times where he he doubled Al Horford and got steals because he's got that uh, you know he he recognizes Horford is going to pick up his dribble and try to pass it out to the guy that to, that Smart just left. He recognizes, it, gets his paw on it, and and creates plays, but. But yes, the the Celtics have done a really good job as far as digging down and, and making Horford or Horford and Embiid uncomfortable. But also, you know, the um, Stan Van Gundy mentioned this on the broadcast when Philadelphia is able to run an action on one side of the floor, move it, and and post up Embiid with deep uh, deep position near the basket. That is really effective, and and when you catch it like five to ten feet from the hoop. It's a lot more difficult to double. Yeah, it is, and it's all about you said the positioning and getting in a spot where you can be more effective without getting that extra attention so fast. And you're right, when you're that close, it's hard. But the thing is, the ability to dig in by these guys makes it difficult, really, to create that 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 space. Really, you know what I mean? To to really to be comfortable and go right into your move, because when you do get down to a certain level, it, it's it's that's it. Yeah, and I think Enos Cantor. I, I mentioned this on my pod with with Scott Levine that I thought Enos Cantor would be a would would arguably be the best option for Boston because he's he's the strongest body to 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 bump with Embiid on the block, but then also he's the best offensive center for the Celtics. So it kind of works on both ends of the floor. And Philadelphia doesn't have anybody on the perimeter that can really take advantage of the lack of foot speed from Cantor. So I think he's been. He's been good, and 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 you got to give Danny Ainge credit that despite the fact that he let uh, Al Horford and Aaron Baines walk, that he's got this trio of centers that uh, that provide or bring different things to the table. You know, Tice just brings that great all-around defensive center play. Cantor is more of the offensive guy, and Robert Williams more just the great athlete. So Brad Stevens does have uh, a lot of versatility at his disposal. And you're right, and, and, and this is one of those matches that are perfect for Enos Cantor, and it's one that, I mean, just in the personnel for Boston, even with the loss of Gordon Hayward, it will still work for this Philadelphia team, you know, and I think that's the bottom line. I was kind of, I didn't think that it would. I I, I mean, I, I thought that it would overall, but I thought it would be a lot tougher, but um, no, it, it's been, I, I figured that the strength of Boston winning this series would have been with the, 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 the guard small lineup for Boston, you know, playing 
bottom line, Kemba Walker, Jalen Brown, and Jason Tatum having those three, and just the shot making, offensive versatility, and, and competent defense ability that three provide, I figured would be the difference between these two. It's been a little bit more than that. Um, a lot of it just being done on Philadelphia's end as far as contributing to where they stand now. But I figured that that would be the biggest difference already. And so you have that, and you have guys that like Brad Wanamaker had good minutes. Enos Cantor has been effective and can be even more effective, you know, given what you were saying. This is it, 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 this is what is going in Boston's favor. And um, it's what I had already thought of. I just didn't think that Philadelphia would kind of self-destruct as well with just a lack of shot-making abilities. Yeah, and again, because the likes of Embiid and Horford are two of their top probably four players on this roster, you know, the, the fact that Kemba Walker and Jason Tatum are such good off-the-bounce threats, they haven't really been able to, to slow down either of those guys. And then Jalen Brown also is just a guy kind of on the periphery that, that makes plays in transition, spots up and knocks down shots, and also attacks off closeouts. So Philadelphia has not been able to slow down any of those three guys. And you you got to think, especially yeah, now that, that Hayward is gone, if, uh, if Philly is going to have any chance of getting back into this series at all or making this close to competitive, uh, and, and speaking to uh, potential future Celtics opponents, uh, looking at you Toronto Raptors, um, uh, you've got to take away one of those three guys. And Corbin, I mean, if if you were kind of strategizing on how to stop this or slow down this Celtics offense, which one of those guys would you try to take away and, and how would you go about doing it? It has to be Kemba, in my opinion. Uh, Jalen Brown plays well off Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum's supernova right now. Kemba Walker, you know, forget just kind of just getting back into form, but I think you can use some length, kind of. It has to be someone like maybe Dybul or Multi Seibel or something because he's obviously quick and shifty, but get some size just to disrupt them. There has been a president of that type of defense causing uh, Walker some issues. So maybe going in that direction more is something I would highly recommend because I don't think that there's a matchup on the 70. There's a, a, there's, a per, there's a player on the 76 who can go and take out Jason Tatum. He, he's just that good right now. He's just that good in general, but he's just that good. Um, with that being said, Jalen Brown is kind of a toss-up between the two, but I, I personally just think it is so much easier to do it when it comes down to um, Kemba Walker, just because you have some obvious advantages. You can put a bigger defender on him, preferably someone who's mobile, and try to limit his effectiveness, force him into shots that, you know, he has a low degree, a high degree of difficulty, and then, you know, the balls will, will fall where they may. Yeah. Um, you can't help but just be so disappointed in the, the Philadelphia front office and what they've done with this roster you know, given what Sam Hinkie set up for this franchise with the likes of Simmons and Embiid and a bunch of draft picks. I mean, they they had everything they needed to, to build a championship roster. And frankly, they came close last year, but they also put a bunch of chips in um, for, for one guy in Butler that they only had for one season and another guy in Harris that they eventually overpaid this offseason and is having a terrible series. But, uh, you know, looking at it now and looking at the fact that, you know, Ben Simmons has had all these injuries and Embiid is going to continue to be a potential injury risk and this roster is just not good enough and they don't have a lot of future draft capital to to improve this roster. And, And, of course, you've got uh, the likes of Harris, Embiid, Simmons, Horford signed up, so you've got no cap room. Uh, 
you know, they they may have to try something drastic to, to get this team competitive, but this is uh, this is definitely going to be a wake up call for the organization, and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if Brett Brown is uh, is out the door sooner rather than later. So let me, let me ask you a question. In response to that, Garrett, you, you said severe changes. Obviously, coaching is one. Do you see one of Embiid or Simmons being jettisoned this year? I I don't or think so. But if it were me, I would. I would. Uh, I would trade the likes of Ben Simmons, uh, and you know I'm I've always been a little bit lower on Ben Simmons than most, especially because I just uh, in the half court in a playoff environment I, I don't think he provides that much value, especially on the offensive end. He obviously does a ton defensively, um, but you know given his value around the league, I think you could get multiple quality starter level players for him and guys that might fit better around a Joel Embiid. You know, if they just had a starting caliber point guard, um, you know, say like a Fred Van Fleet, um, and and another starting caliber wing, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, and, and two, obviously both of them would have to be good shooters to, to play around Embiid, but, and guys that also know how to throw an entry pass. Uh, I think you know, key too. Um, I think uh, I think that would be helpful. The challenge, though, too, is, um, you know, if Tobias Harris is conti- is going to continue to not be a floor spacer, that whole um, Harris, Horford, and Bede front line that you've spent so much money on is is going to be tricky to to work around. Yeah, and that's kind of an issue too. I mean, I would I would look at one of those two, like you said, and I would also lean towards Simmons. I think it's easier to build around. Um, Embiid than it is to build around Simmons, and that's kind of where I would start. And he's but, just the better player. Embiid is the better player of the two as well. Oh yeah, oh well, yes, definitely. But like, also you're right. You have a problem with Al Horford and Simmons. Where I mean, I mean, I mean Al Horford and, and and Harris. Where I guess I don't know. Harris isn't. He's best played at the four. I guess you kind of still have an issue. You can play him at the three, but he's best at the four unless you bring Horford off the bench totally. But if you were to get rid of Simmons, you know, get like an elite guard or whatever the case may be. Yes, elite guard. I'm not really sure what the what the market for Simmons or what type of player you would fetch back. I would think, obviously, some talented player for Simmons would be, obviously, one that doesn't clash with your front court because that's why the issue already resides for Philly. But then you could kind of stabilize the rotation a little bit more, whether you bring bringing Horford off the bench or starting with power forward alongside Embiid, and whether Harris is playing at small forward or power forward. And you get a, a, a little more um, continuity there in terms of roster construction because right now, that's the biggest issue as anything. You already said just the inability to throw uh, an entry pass, and, and, and there is no joking. It's it's really no ability to do it. I saw Josh Richardson over the course of this series overthrow by a mile at least two different times. Passes in to Joel Embiid, um, getting position in the post. It's just not something that they're great at. And you, uh, Shake Milton, a uh, fine guard, he's not ready for these minutes. Josh Richardson, more of a low usage off ball player whose strength is kind of a, a a utility player. You know, he's not someone that you're relying on for for twenty points consistently. And they just don't have anyone else that's doing that. And the fact that they've been able to get away so... It, it, it's funny. Looking at it now, the fact that they've been able to be so successful, uh, you know, to a certain extent, with the type of person they have on the floor is, is, is crazy. Because you're right. You don't have a lot of great shooters. The best shooters out of your big men, um, I guess, would be Horf, would be Harris, Horford, um, and Bede, and then Simmons in order uh, of who can, you know, reliably knock down a three. And, and honestly, once you get... All of them are kind of iffy out there. I would probably put Horford as maybe one of the more stronger three-point shooters. And that's saying a lot. You just don't have the type of 
makeup that you need as a, as a successful NBA team right now. Yeah, um, and you know, you mentioned the missed entry passes where they throw it over Embiid's head. I mean, I saw a bunch in game one where it was just not even attempting the pass, where Embiid gets great position. You know, Embiid is a guy that uh, is inconsistent with his effort, but to me, if he's putting in effort to to uh, seal his man and is calling for the ball, you've got to get him the basketball. And there were about five or six t- possessions in that game one where he looked open and the Sixers just didn't throw it to him, and then he just walked away in frustration. Uh, so, yeah, that has been a big problem. But, but yeah, I think moving forward, especially if you do trade Simmons, I think, you know, hopefully the, the idea would be you'd put Horford as your, you know, as the highest paid backup center in NBA history. Um, and you would put Harris at the at the starting four spot and hope that him playing on, at his more preferred position, that spacing would be more, uh, you know, uh, he, he would get more opportunities playing at the four and be more comfortable spacing at, at that spot. And then you can get a, a small forward and a point guard potentially for the likes of Simmons in a trade. Uh, again, don't know who that would be, but... Um, yeah. I mean, would, would would you agree that you could probably get two starting caliber players in a in a in a deal for Simmons? I would think so. Yeah, I mean, look what the Clippers got for Harris. You know, <laughs> right. <laughs> in their trade, I would think if you get that kind of haul for a player like Tobias Harris, you'd have to get something for Ben Simmons more akin to yes, two starting level players with one, you know, either a great player right now or someone who has tremendous upside. Yeah. So. uh I mean, with, at 3-0, this series is uh, is in the books, and it appears that there's going to be a Celtics-Raptors showdown, which I am very excited about, although it is a bummer that uh, Hayward is probably not going to participate in that series. Uh, but, uh, yeah, anything else about Celtics-Sixers before we move on to uh, the next one? I'm just pouring one out for my... Uh for my Sixers hopes and dreams uh, I knew they were going to lose but I just didn't going to be like this and I felt bad for all the Sixers fans I'm, I'm sure we both have friends who are just beside themselves right now and um, I hate the players having to do with just how horribly they've stunk down the stretch but that's it <laughs> yeah and you know there, there's been a lot of talk about uh, these series and when a team gets up 2-0 what is the reaction going to be uh, you know, because you don't have the the underdog or the road team then getting home court advantage for games three or four now in the bubble, and uh, there there was a lot of talk about well, what what type of basketball team is Philadelphia? Are they in the bubble? Are they going to play like the road team that had a under five hundred record? Or are they going to play like the twenty nine and two team that they were at home? And uh, needless to say, I think they're playing like the road team. We know how they're. Me and you, we knew. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, that series is uh, done and dusted. So let's move on to the the next series, uh, one that I've really enjoyed. Although there was an injury in Game Three that has kind of put a damper on things, but that is the Dallas Mavericks versus the Los Angeles Clippers. And that injury I'm referring to is uh, Luka Doncic twisting his left ankle in that Game Three, and I believe I heard he is questionable for game four on Sunday, but boy, oh boy, just in terms of, um, you know, really entertaining, fun basketball to watch with a lot of offensive talent on the floor, Corbin, it it doesn't get much better than this series. Yeah, it it really doesn't. I mean, you've had great play from the bench on on the Mavericks side has been awesome. You've had tremendous star play by Kawhi 
Paul George has been given um, headlines both on and off the court. Um, Luka Doncic has been just impressive and and really back on the height. If anyone had any questions about Luka Doncic and how he performed on the big stage, and me and I was myself, I have to raise my hand. Um, the dude is is clearly, clearly an all time great already. I mean, just in terms of the poise and way he's been able to put his touch on every level of the game. But it's not just that. Kristaps is in his first playoffs too. People kind of overlooked that. He's played well for the Clippers end. Um, Landry Shaman had a big game for the most part. You kind of know the big two that are going in. Marcus Morris had a really effective series. There's, there's so much to go on both sides that you're right. I mean, even had some mantras, Harold, Luka Doncic, stupidity that the Twitter world keeps talking about. That I've also put my share in and I'm like, why did I do that? But in general, you just had some very, it's been a really good series. I mean, the injury has already kind of severely dampened my outlook on the future games of this just because as great as the Mavericks have been without Luka Doncic in the minutes they've had to sustain including one win in game two you know where Luka was on the bench in foul trouble that they were able to come and win you know off the, off the strength of a Seth Curry and a Trey Burke and, and others um, they just can't do it for a sustained series against Kawhi you know like like they have now and, and whether or not Luka plays or not he will be hampered and I think that'll be the biggest difference unfortunately yeah um so, I mean, yeah, I think we're both in agreement that the Clippers are, are probably, especially, yeah, if, if Luka either doesn't play or is uh, playing at 70 80%, which, by the way, he was limping around at the end of Game 3, I would imagine. Yeah, he's, he's going to be well below 100%. Uh, yeah, the Clippers are probably going to win this one. But uh, I still kind of want to talk about the first couple of games of this series uh, because they were so fun. Um, the... Uh, the interesting thing, obviously, with the Clippers starting Avicii Zubac, the Dallas Mavericks kind of picked them apart with that uh, Doncic-Porzingis pick-and-pop play where, you know, Zubac wants to drop back into the paint and uh, Porzingis just lit him up in games one and two, at least in, in game one until he was ejected. The, the other thing that's been fascinating is because the, uh, you know, Montrez Harrell has been missing for so much and maybe isn't... Uh, at 100% isn't in the best of shape as of yet. Rick Carlisle has been able to go with Boban Marjanovic in that matchup. And and also, you know, in, in the same way that, um, you know, the, the series we talked about where um, with Boston and Enos Cantor, Philadelphia doesn't really have anyone that can that can really make him pay defensively. Uh, the, the Clippers don't really have too many people that can make Boban pay defensively either, especially, again, when that Lou williams Montrez harrell pick-and-roll, they haven't gone to that because Harrell just isn't the same guy at the moment, and Boban has, has been really good offensively as he, he typically is. Yeah, Boban's played well. I loved his minutes. I love his effectiveness. He had a game two, I think, again, was just kind of coming out a little bit. He was doing some work in general, but he had a nice quick dunk off of a little feed. He had a nice little shimmy hook over Howell, who couldn't do anything about him you know, on a good day, much less being the kind of defender he is. And, and you're right, in these minutes, he's, he's, he's done damage. And, and that's been kind of the key for them. They don't really have anyone to stick him in general. But you're right, once they go that bench, it's like, okay, just give, give the Mavericks those two points. Just do it. Yeah, and the uh, I've been loving the you know the, the mic'd up, those players with mics on. And there was uh, there's a couple good Boban ones where – uh, Luca before the game said something to to Boban like uh, you know you can you can curse now Boban and 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 uh, Marjanovic is just like Luca I don't say bad words. 
It's just such a wholesome guy. Yeah, and then Marcus Morris said on the other end also, like, uh, he, he said, yeah, you might be the nicest person I've ever met to Bobon. Yeah, they, they, she tapped him and everything. I'm like, oh, Marcus Morris showing a soft side, but you can't not show one around Bobon. <laughs> yeah, you just can't. That's been fun. But yeah, um, speaking to the rest of the Mavs bench, I mean, Seth Curry is looking a little bit like Steph Curry out there for Dallas at times. Uh, And, uh, you know, the play of Trey Burke as well. He actually is looking like uh, somebody that's like, oh, yeah, I can see why he was a top five pick at one time. I mean, the guy has really found his his niche in the the game. Um, So, yeah, they've been getting great minutes. And and yeah, you know, when when guys like Dorian Finney-Smith are knocking down shots, you know, um, Tim Hardaway Jr., of course, has hit shots all year, and you've got the the, the Doncic-Porzingis pick-and-roll and pick-and-pop combination. This Mavericks team has has felt at times very unguardable. Yeah, and, and a good note about Trey Burke, I've been saying this for a little bit, not on podcasts, but in general, that I thought that Burke would be perfect. He would be perfect on the Mavericks, especially seeing how they've used small guards in, in the past. Rodrigo um, J.J. Barea. If any coach, any team knows how to deploy small guards and utilize them to the best of their strengths, it is Rick Carlisle and the Dallas Mavericks. And, you know, there they are doing that with Trey Burke, who is looking great. And he's had flashes already. You know, I really like his play in New York, um, just for instance. But, yeah, the, the Mavericks are a team that, you know, get a couple other pieces, I think. I'm, I'm trying to figure out what those pieces are. I feel like they're still short, maybe another shooter or something. But in general, Seth Curry has been playing just amazing. He's uh, He had a strong playoff series, I thought, last year, um, at least up to a certain point. He had, a, 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 I know, a classic game with uh, with uh, Seth Curry. That was kind of fun. But he's been looking just great, decisive in his moves, Someone, you know, not creating off the bounce, but kind of utilizing the gravity of the shot, making him the hard closeouts, to take a nice side dribble into a three, pull up into a crisp two. You know, his shot making is just it's all it's on all cylinders right now. And the Mavericks in general, they've looked really good. MKG, I've liked I've liked MKG's minutes. I, I just, you know, he had a, a game one. I think he hit back to back threes. Like these guys are, they're playing really well. I mean, they just don't have it ultimately. And I think the biggest matchup is not really having someone to stick Kawhi because he is literally getting anywhere he wants on the floor, anywhere he wants on the floor at any given time. You know, the Mavericks have been playing decently well. Dwayne Finney Smith is trying. You know, they have other guys they put on him. Um, but at the end of the day, it, 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 Max Cleavers had moments. That's what I think is the biggest difference, but that's not to say anything light on the Dallas Mavericks because they have been playing great. It's been such a joy to watch them. Yeah, I mean, and, and uh, there's a lot of talk that if Porzingis wasn't ejected in that game one, they might have been up 2-0 in this series. I mean, that's how well they've played offensively, and the Clippers didn't have a lot of answers. But yeah, you know, speaking to what Dallas needs, I mean, yeah, they... They they need a uh, they need another elite wing to stop guys like Kawhi Leonard. That's exactly what they need. I don't I don't think they really need much more shooting. They've got uh, shooters all over the floor and on the starting lineup and on the bench. But yeah, you know they could they could use just one more elite wing sort of defensive player that um, isn't as much of an offensive liability as Kid Gilchrist is. Even though he uh, his shot looks slightly better than it used to, it still looks really ugly. Um, but, uh, you know, not quite as ugly, not as quite as much of a hitch as it used to. Um, but the the one thing I did see, you know, I, I think Rick Carlisle's coached an excellent series, but 
One thing I did see a little bit in that uh, game three that I didn't like was they, uh, you know, they had they had lineups with uh, Boban, Maxi Kleba, and Luka Doncic out there, and frankly, that to me is where. Um, the team doesn't quite have enough shooting out there. Kleba's perfect when you pair him with Porzingis because Porzingis is such a sniper, and Kleba can then roll to the rim. But uh, when you've got Boban, who who is uh, you know primarily a guy that's going to live in the paint, Kleba not quite a, a good enough shooter. Uh, so that was that was one lineup uh, and one thing uh, you know in a in a series where Rick Carlisle's probably coached at an A minus level I think that's one thing that I've uh, I have disliked Yeah I'm with you Clippers you know he's, he's I will say he's, he's trying you know he's somewhere as, as far as like working on a shot but when he when he misses his misses are still very bad and you're right that that kind of limits the, the the open court that the Mavericks have to work with because you can definitely cheat off a of Cleaver there I wanted to ask you are you of the opinion that if uh, Porzingis hadn't been ejected, the Mavericks would have won. Because I can't quite get on board with that. I think that they they were playing well down the stretch, but I, I thought that the momentum was really with the Clippers even then. And yes, Porzingis was a factor. But I, I mean, I'm just curious from someone who I, you know, not saying it, not not someone I believe is saying it for takes or anything, but someone I'm looking at that like from your analyzation, from your own vantage point. Well, what did you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I... I uh, um... You know, Porzingis is such a crucial element to their team, not only in terms of rim protection, but yeah, having that guy that can can space out to 25 to 30 feet, he's so huge for that team. And and yeah, I believe they were up when it happened. Is am I right? Yeah. Um, now I know that uh, Patrick Beverly had a big impact in that fourth quarter, and that's something that is a, is a bit of a concern for the Clippers because I think, uh, you know, Beverly is so huge to that uh, team's defensive identity because especially when when Zubac is off the floor, they, they lack rim protection, so their defense is highly predicated on, you know, eliminating penetration, and Beverly is so good at that. Um, so that'll be that'll be an issue, and hopefully he'll, get, he'll be healthy sooner rather than later. But, yeah, I, I would probably agree with you that the Clippers would probably have won that, although I don't think they would have won it as easily if Porzingis was out there. Um, but, yeah, I, I think through the first two games, you could say that Dallas was uh, – I don't think it's crazy to suggest that Dallas was the better team out of the first two games. I would definitely agree with you there. They, they have been. They have been. Um, just up, down, top to bottom, I, I think down the stretch, like I said, even without Luke, I really thought that the Clippers would have, you know, eventually – taken over but now it's interesting to think about moving forward that if they play that way could they sustain that level of play not specifically the shot making but just in general yeah um a couple of positives for the clippers obviously uh Kawhi leonard has been phenomenal as uh and, and showing that uh the the Kawhi we saw in last postseason was no fluke he uh, he has been the best player on the planet through three games of the playoffs um the uh there was there was one play where uh, in Game Three, where Luka Doncic drove into the paint, and uh, Kawhi was guarding Seth Curry in the uh, the weak side corner, and uh, Kawhi comes in and uh, looks like he's ready to 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 jump to to block Doncic's layup attempt, and Doncic, being the brilliant passer, realizes, oh, he's left Seth Curry, so I'll make that pass. He goes to make it, and Kawhi. Uh, after already committing to to be able to block Doncic's layup attempt, he just sticks his left hand into the air 
and just basically grabs the pass and then takes it down and dunks it on the other end. But I'm just going, man, this guy is this guy is something special. And uh, um, in a, in a series where Luka Doncic, when he's been out there, has has been truly phenomenal. Uh, there has been uh, there's been no question as to the best player on the floor. No, not even close. You said it. It's, it, it's been it's and the guy's made a stamp. He's uh, the big reason why we are where we are now talking about. You know, we mentioned LeBron earlier and how as as much as he's had you know his hand on on many facets of the game, uh, the best player in general. I mean, it, it's crazy looking on his development just how far he's come that he's at this level now. You know, I've seen. On Twitter, uh, talking about Kawhi's Michael Jordan comparisons and such, and I'm not quite there in certain elements, but with his mid-range efficiency, with like the devastating sense of dread you get when he gets the ball, he's like so robotic in his efficiency. You know what I mean? He's gonna get to a spot. You know what he's gonna do? No, you can't stop it. There it is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, couple other positives for the Clippers, especially in that game three. I thought Harrell is slowly. Like a lot of guys that, you know, maybe had to leave the bubble and are coming back uh, initially a little bit out of shape, a little bit slower. I think Harrell is getting better game by game. Um, and, and also Landry Shamit. He might be a guy that I think just plays better as a starter because Doc uh, put him in the starting lineup, which I thought was a yeah. good move. I like him as a starter over Reggie Jackson, especially on the defensive end. And I think Landry Shamit with his off-ball movement provides a little something different for the Clippers. But he looked like the Landry Shamit we saw last year that, that performed well in that Golden State series. Yeah, Garrett, I was going to say, I, I like you starting over Reggie Jackson. But <laughs> going, back to, going back to Landry Shamit, he really does. His confidence, I think a lot of that is, is that being in the flow of the game from the beginning, not just being a, des, a designated shooter, but someone who can kind of find it in the rhythm of the game. And you're right, he's playing very much like he did last year where, you know, he was he had clutch shots for the Clippers. He he played well. He was a, a, a very valued piece that he still is now, but his role was a lot more pronounced in a way that it is and now he's been more typecast in a certain area and he's kinda had struggled with that fluctuating role. So this was a nice uh, adjustment by Doc, which I enjoyed. If you're not gonna have Beverly available to you, you might as well get someone in um in in, in, in this in, in this in this move that gives you that increased shooting and someone who and with Shamit knows kind of where to be, you know, and not just lost. And I, I don't like his man defense per se, but I like his ability to be able to help. You know what I mean? I, I just, I, um, I, I like the move. Another adjustment Doc made was, uh, you know, taking Zubach off of Porzingis, you know, to, to, to try to take away those pick and pops and, and switch those actions. Um, and, uh, you know, putting Zubach on Finney Smith, who's not much of a, an on-ball creator, more of just a spot-up shooter. I thought that was another nice adjustment from from Rivers. But, uh, Corbin, I, I have a question for you. And speaking to, you know, we, we talked about LeBron James and, and the level that he'll have to get to if the Lakers want to beat the likes of the Rockets and the Clippers and the Bucks. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on the level of Paul George's performance so far and uh, whether the way he's played to this point is good enough for the Clippers to beat the teams they're going to have to face later in the postseason? Uh, <laughs> this is fun. So with Paul George, I mean, game one, he played really really good, obviously. Game two and three, you know, he said he helped the team in other ways. I think uh, someone who just the gravity of him as a shooter, off-ball action, being able to be more of a playmaker, being able to be 
uh, more of a defender, even if he's a lockdown defender he was in years past, is helpful. With that being said, with the volume of shots that George is taking, I'm not happy with the way he's been playing. You know, going 3-17 or whatever the case may be from the field is rough when it's that many shots are left on the table when you just don't have it going. Um, I didn't tend to look at Paul as a streaky shooter. I mean, he's had streaks of, of supernova threes. I, I, I just meant that in terms of there being a baseline for George. Um, right now, I mean, this reminds me a lot of OKC, um, even though a lot of that I'm looking past, looking at the 2018 year, not the 2019 when he was playing with the torn labrums. He had a lot of the same thing in Utah. We had some really hot games and some really cold games as well. Um, I think it was in the, their elimination game. He finished with five points and not for lack of shot attempts. But the point being, with what he's bringing to the floor, other than that, yes, it'll be great for the. It won't be great. It'll be helpful with Clippers to get past the team they're playing in later rounds. I don't know. They're fortunate that they have, that they won't be playing the Rockets. I'll tell you that in the next round, um, just to where the bracket is or where the Lakers are after that. Um, because I think if they went to level. If, he, if those shooting strolls continued or those slumps were more pronounced later into those rounds, then yes, I do think it would be a problem because the, the Clippers just don't have enough reliable, you know, self-creating shot-making aside from Kawhi and Paul George. I feel like I said for the Lakers, you have Marcus Morris, who in matchups I think is very effective unless it's against the Lakers. Um, and aside from that, you have guys who are definitely going to look for their shots. You know, Lou Williams is one who off the bench is great, but defensively, there's a reason he's not getting as, you know, as as pronounced playing time, I mean, crunch time as, as he would, you know, and, and I think that moving forward, that is something of a concern. I'm not concerned right now, I just think it can grow into a concern. Yeah, um, Morris, I thought, I think has been has been really good so far, that's a good sign for the Clippers, but yeah, Paul George, um, you mentioned sort of the uh, inconsistencies with his shooting, especially in the postseason, and, and one of the things I have noticed, especially in this series, is just his lack of getting to the rim at all. Now, you know, Dallas does uh, typically have a 7'3 or taller man on the floor, so, you know, yeah. sometimes getting all the way to the hoop is difficult, but, you know, similar to, you know, we've seen it with as good a, as great of a player as, as Steph Curry is, you know, he'll occasionally have these games where he goes 2 for 15, because when your game is pr- primarily just outside shots, you know, you're not always going to hit those. And that's where, you know, it separates, uh, you know, a guy like Kawhi Leonard where he's taking threes, he's getting to the mid-range, he's getting to the rim, he's getting to the free-throw line. So if any one of those four elements aren't working, he can still score and be effective in other ways. And, and frankly, Paul George, not the greatest passer in the world, and yeah, when he's not getting to the rim, he's not getting to the free throw line, and that jump shot isn't falling, uh, he can he can look pretty ordinary. Yeah, and that's an issue for a team that was built as much around Kawhi, I mean, as much around George as it was for Kawhi to be that two-pronged attack that leads to charge, you know? Offensively, you have uh, more sources of offense, most certainly, and off the bench, you know, a lot of that goes around Lou Will and, and Montrez, but... You have two-way wings who are devastating on both ends, at least in theory, between Kawhi and George, that make them so effective. You know that, that, that especially when you add to that, you know, the great, the solid play of Zubac, the great play of um, Pat Beverly, obviously before going down. You know, uh, if that's what made this Clippers, or that's what makes this Clippers team uh, 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 scary as they are. So having a Paul George that's not playing as great, you know, and, and with the shot not being able to go, no. I, I think right now, of course, with this, short, with this Mavericks team in general, I think it would work, especially with them being shorthanded. Um, but if it was the Rockets, I would 
manifest itself for the Clippers until, you know, into the conference finals. Um, but I, I do think that is an issue in general. For me, because of how great Kawhi is, I look at it like the best player, you know, on the floor, especially with a competent supporting cast, I usually give the nod to. And in both this round and next round, I'm giving that to Kawhi, regardless of the matchup. Um, but if it was, like, let's say the Lakers or the Rockets and you have Kawhi and, like, an ineffective Paul George, then it, it, it's more of a, a swing of the pendulum for me. So uh, it really just depends. But it's not optimal for sure, and it, it really goes to suboptimal very quickly for the Clippers. Yeah, I think uh, you mentioning the fact that uh, they're – uh, if they get out of this series, and it, it, it's likely that they will, uh, you know, the, the next round matchup versus either Utah or Denver, they're gonna. I, I would pick. I would say the the Clippers are even heavier favorites to to win against one of those teams than they are to to get out of this series against Dallas. I think Dallas is better than both of those teams from what I've seen. Um, so uh, I think the the Clippers will have uh, have some time for the likes of. Patrick Beverly to get right, the likes of uh, Montrez Harrell to to get back to round back into form, and and hopefully for Paul George to, to get back to playing at a at a really high level. Uh, but uh, yeah, anything else about this series, Corbin? Before we move on to to the next series. No, I'm ready to get it moving. We covered this one pretty in depth. All right. So uh, what uh, I picked the last one. So what uh, what series do you want to talk about next? Let's talk about Miami. Let's, let's touch on that. Okay. What, what, I think, I just feel bad. I feel like this is just not a great matchup for Indiana where they stand. Um, you know, not having a fully effective Oladipo, not having DeMontis Sabonis were obviously factors that kind of came into this. But for the Miami Heat, able to focus more on TJ Warren, um, I think Miami Miller made a great uh, t- t- tactical change bringing in Drew, I'm not Drew Holiday, um, bringing out Aaron Holiday. And putting in um, his brother as far as um, starting. I don't know why names are escaping me today, Garrett. But anyways, <laughs> um, there's been some changes made. But bottom line, I think on, on the offensive end, Indiana just hasn't had a consistent source. Miles Turner has had his moments. Victor Oladipo's definitely taken his volume of shots. Um, but that's in spite of just kind of finding his own form and coming off of that pretty bad poked eye in game one. And then for the Heat, it's been a Goran Dragic explosion. Um, he's just looked amazing. Jared Butler's looked very good. And Duncan Robinson was held very much in check um, by the Pacers defense. And Edmund Summers, in particular, in game one, has, has found his footing and his form in, in, his form in game two and three. Yeah, the, uh, uh, I, I, listening to uh, the, the Dunked On pod, they, um, they, uh, they, they mentioned that whole decision by uh, McMillan to, to start Justin Holiday over Aaron Holiday for game three, a decision that, uh, they, they, that he probably should have made it at game one. And they, they contrasted that with the fact that Eric Spolstra, from the start of the, of the bubble, took Myers Leonard out of the starting lineup and put Bam at the five, realizing that this is the ideal way to go about things. This gives us our best chance. And just that, uh, you know, this has been a relatively close series, but that uh, that coaching edge where Miami is a little bit proactive in their decision-making and Indiana and, and McMillan is a little bit reactive can can make all the difference. Yeah, and, and I think it's manifested itself over the series where is it, is it, do you think, I mean, for me, it just seems that Indiana just, without being at full strength, are just outclassed. I think that Miami just has too many weapons. Is it as simple? Is it as cut and dry as that here? 
You know, I, I don't think so. You know, we saw in we saw in game three, especially in the second half, Indiana, you know, heavily outplayed Miami, but they got down by twenty early in the game and just weren't able to crawl all the way back. But uh, you know, Malcolm Brogdon did really well in that second half, had like thirty plus points and and uh, a bunch of assists and, and they were able to attack the likes of Tyler Hero and uh, and Goran Dragic just getting the ball at the top of the key and, and doing that. But it, it, it's taken a little bit too long for them to just simplify the offensive game and, and realize that this Miami roster, you know, they've got a lot of one-way guys. You know, they have guys that are really good defenders in the likes of Iguodala and Jay Crowder. Uh, and then they have just good offensive players in the likes of Dragic and Robert uh, Robinson and Hero, uh, so you've got to take advantage of that. Uh, and and uh, they they just have kind of gone to that a little bit too late. And and also you know there's there's a bit of an issue with with Indiana in terms of who's the best guy on this team. I personally think uh, it's Brogdon, but a lot of the time uh, Victor Oladipo thinks it's him. Yeah, I mean, Brockton's performance, uh, speaking of Game 3, was just massive in terms of being a go-to guy and someone who's generating offense. But you're right, I think Victor Oladipo feels that it's his responsibility to go back to that prime 2018 um, Indiana Victor Oladipo that he's just not at right now and, and bringing that to bear or bringing that to the table um, in terms of volume of shots, even if, you know, that isn't necessarily where he's at. And it's not even necessarily. That just isn't where he's at right now. Um both in shot volume and just looking right. Like, he doesn't pass the numbers test or the eye test in terms of being someone to continually provide offense for the Pacers down the stretch um, on a consistent basis. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, Miles Turner, you know, he's kind of had an up-and-down series. He's had some good performances, especially in Game 2. And, and he's a he's a very consistent and solid defensive anchor for that team. And I think he's done a good job, especially dealing with Bam Adebayo and, and Bam's face-up game. Um, but uh, offensively, he's just a little bit too inconsistent, and part of that also is just uh, I think the system doesn't prioritize him spacing the floor and, and getting a bunch of uh, shot attempts. I, I think he should be a guy that's attempting, you know, six threes a game. Um, but uh, you know, given that he doesn't rebound that well, uh, they they need a little bit more from him offensively, especially when Miami is switching. Uh, you know, I, coming out of the draft, I thought Turner was going to be really good as far as a guy that could attack switches and just being able to shoot over the top, but we've hardly seen any of that. That hasn't been something that has been utilized, I guess, which is, it's been weird to see in general. I mean, a lot of roles have been kind of fluctuated at least through the series that we've been talking about, but that one has been one of the more surprising for me as well in terms of that's kind of his bread and butter, and yet he's not kind of being utilized that way. Yeah. Um, McMillan had another coaching blunder, I thought, in this uh, game three where they, the Pacers were down four with 52.8 seconds left, oh. and uh, he uh, the, the team had two timeouts left. He calls a timeout there. I absolutely hate that. For one, when you're down, you need your timeouts in the last about 10 seconds to advance the basketball to give your, your team a quick possession. Um, but also, you know, 
when you call a timeout in that situation, not only do you allow the defense to rest, you allow them to set up, and and it's a definite half-court possession as opposed to a transition opportunity, but then you also... uh, it allowed the the Heat and Eric Spolster to insert Jay Crowder onto the floor and 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 uh, spruce up that defensive lineup, and of course then that uh, that Pacers possession, uh, it didn't look like they had uh, a, an idea of what they wanted to run, and then it ended up being a turnover, and it's just like yeah, if, if you're calling a timeout in that situation and and taking away a crucial timeout for the end of the game, you better draw up a play and it better work. Yeah, exactly. It, has, it must be a go-to because you're right. You're giving up a lot of, of of just strategic adjustments that you have, you know, advantage that you have. Not having one of Miami's better defenders on the floor at the moment. Not, you know, maybe being able to push for something in transition or or, or making something out of a, uh, an opportunity that, that didn't present itself, you know, in transition on opening because you have weaker defenders on the floor. And you put a pause on the action, allow Eric Spolster and the Heat to counteract it, and like you said, it has to be a cannot miss play, which it wasn't, because <laughs> it needs to work. That you pause and gave it's like giving the team, hey, we'll give you. It's like I, I don't even know what that is. Like you could go and uh, play could break down. There could be a defensive breakdown. There could be something in transition heading up court. Something to open itself up for a much easier basket percentage wise than putting a pause on the action, saying, okay, you know what, y'all, Miami, get your plays in order. Put whatever defensive plan you got. We're gonna come with our guys. What kind of a mono mono like strategic? game plan is that where you're not taking advantage of a break that you've been given in the action in order to stop and do just what you said allow Miami to come up with a counter action to take you out of a play that probably wasn't a given to begin with you probably had more of an opportunity creating something in the initial um, transition of bringing the ball up court than you did out of the set half court offense when you know you have a set Miami defense with, with great long arm defenders yeah it's uh you know, McMillan, I think, is, is getting out coached in this series, although I do think McMillan is a, is a solid basketball coach, but uh, uh, Eric Spolster, arguably a top-five coach in the league, and, and he's running circles around him. Uh, the the other thing that's uh, that's been disappointing from a Pacer perspective is the likes of Oladipo and Holiday in terms of when they're guarding Duncan Robinson, and they just don't stay connected. You know, in a playoff series, again, when I did that pod with, with Scott Levine, I... I asked him, does Duncan Robinson have the all-around offensive game to still function and be effective when playoff attention and playoff defenses are really honed in on him? And, you know, neither of us were really sure of that. But what has happened in this series is, you know, it's it's kind of been regular season defense as far as uh, you see Oladipo occasionally just uh, not, uh, not following... Duncan Robinson moving off the basketball and he gets an open look, um, you know, curling off a screen and not staying attached. You know, uh, there was a, a play where Miles Turner kind of dropped off and, and didn't help on a on a dribble handoff action. And it's just like, uh, it's very simple. You know, you've got to make this guy make a play off the dribble, make a pass. If you're just going to let him shoot, he's going to beat you. Exactly. That's like putting a guy out of his little bread and butter position of this is what he does, he shoots. Hey, I'm going to make him a playmaker. Hey, I'm going to make him create shots in space. Hey, I'm going to give a closeout that's not going to prevent him to do a dribble to the left or right and get a shot, but instead forced to drive the ball into traffic. Instead of doing all that, hey, Dwight Robinson's a shooter. We're going to make him a shooter. Like, that doesn't make any sense. And in game one, I feel like Indiana did such a great job of staying attached to him and trailing screens and taking him out of his rhythm. 
shooters on the floor or in the NBA, period. He brings that skill, and that's great. Aside from that, I would attack him with every other faucet they get, not only defensively, but what can he do offensively? Push him to the limit of his offensive capacity aside from being able to get jumpers off in space or around screens or off of movement. Yeah, um, you know, the, we've seen in, in, in the past with, with guys that are primarily shooters, I, I, I specifically remember, I believe it was the 20, um, either 17 or 18 Clippers Jazz series where Joe Ingles just completely took J.J. Redick out of the series. Um, you know, and just by being attached, basically denying, um, and, uh, yeah, face guard type defense. And, uh, um, JJ Redick, I think has improved even over the last couple of years that he's, uh, he's able to, um, create a little bit off the bounce now. Uh, so he has kind of gotten beyond that, but I don't know if Duncan Robinson has gotten to that level yet. Uh, but, uh, the Pacers, you know, just those few defensive mistakes, I think in, in game two, it was uh, he got off to like uh, a nine-point start just because they they made a couple of errors early in that game, and and that nine points can can cost you the ball game. Um, the uh, you know again speaking to you know I, I predicted Miami would win this relatively easily. I said Miami in five, and it's looking more like it's going to be a sweep now. But my main reasoning behind it wasn't that the talent gap was super significant. It was that Miami runs a system. They're going to get guys system buckets and also you know a guy like Jimmy Butler he's gonna get to the free throw line he's going to provide some some easy points for your offense and allow your half court defense to set and uh, you know speaking to that whole uh, there's been a lot of uh, chit chat about uh, you know the, the Jimmy Butler TJ Warren matchup but Butler has really won that in large part because when he drives he draws fouls and when Warren drives he's usually putting up some finesse-type shot and and not drawing that contact. You're right. One is drawing into contact, one isn't. And, 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 and it doesn't help that Butler's found his three-point shot for the first time in like five months. But even he didn't <laughs> utilize it today, I mean, in game three per se, but he had a couple big ones in game one. Um, he was decent in, in game two. And you're right. One guy is inviting trips to the line, trips to convert more points, where the other just isn't able. He's trying to use more, I guess, craft, if that's even a good word to describe how he thinks the line, but it definitely isn't inviting fouls or trips to the basket. It's trying to convert tougher shots around tough opponents um, with a lack of likelihood of that success of falling, but also not enough that you're going to find yourself at the foul line. So it's, it's really just a lesson, an uh, effort of futility uh, of, of converting points in that way. Even though I do feel like Warren has played decently well for Indiana, um, even with the three-point shot being gone since game one. Yeah, so anything else about this series before we uh, we move on? You know, not really. Uh, I, I guess one question for you uh, moving forward. Um, again, I feel like I'm kind of writing a, uh, a um, autopsy here in Indiana. You think uh, just a healthy, good, true to form all the deep, uh, and Sabonis comes back next season, the Pacers are right back where they were? Um. Yeah, I mean, if you're saying Oladipo is back to all-NBA level, like all-NBA... Uh, <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean, a comp to Oladipo. I honestly, I don't know if this is a popular, unpopular opinion. I don't think he's going to get back to that. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that's gone. I think that him just being someone who's like, I don't think he's healthy right now, right? Um, with that being said, I don't think that healthy Oladipo is what we saw, but maybe healthy Oladipo is what we had this season. Healthy Oladipo isn't 2018 All-NBA Oladipo. 
Yeah, um, and, and this Oladipo, again, still, you know, one thing that uh, could improve in the future for him without even gaining back any athleticism is just recognizing the player that he is now and not trying to play like he did back in 2018. I think that's a way that he could uh, in, improve his game and help his team some. But yeah, I think the the only route for Indiana to, to, to not be just this first-round fun playoff team is, yeah, Oladipo regaining that athleticism, becoming an all-NBA guy again. And then, yeah, if you if you bring Sabon, a healthy Sabonis back to this roster, you combine him with the likes of Brogdon and, and, and uh, T.J. Warren and Miles Turner, yeah, I think this team could be a legitimate threat to make a conference finals. Um, but, uh, yeah, if, if Oladipo doesn't, uh, doesn't get back to, to that level again, and, and I'm with you, I don't think it will happen. Um, you know, the, the ceiling is, is probably second round at most. And, uh, I guess for, for a lot of franchises that might be, that might be good enough. Um, you know, not everyone is, uh, is always reaching for the stars. No, very true. I guess I'm, it's just sad that we're going to have great Oladipo games next season or in the future. And they're just going to be called vintage Oladipo games. Yeah, that is uh, that is really sad. All right, let's uh, let's move on to another series. Uh, and uh, speaking of sad, the Denver Nuggets um, taking on the Utah Jazz, and and boy was I wrong about this series. Um, I picked Denver in five, and that uh, is is already impossible. Uh, they're down two one to to Utah, and. I guess a, a couple of things that have, have shocked me so far in this series, um, you know, I, I recognize Denver's defense has been bad in the bubble, and it's really been bad since the start of the of the year. But, you know, this team played reasonably good defense in last year's playoffs against the likes of Damian Lillard. And, and yes, the Spurs are were, were a flawed offensive unit, but they played pretty solid defense to win that series. Um, and they have a lot of, uh, of similar pieces, but I guess I just didn't realize, you know, I, I know Gary Harris is a good defender. Will Barton is, you know, an average to maybe slightly above average defensive player. I didn't realize that those two guys made Denver go from being, you know, maybe a slightly above average defense to one of the worst defenses I've ever seen. experience just playing to the heights uh, highest of his levels boom then game two and it's like okay you know that wasn't great and then game three it's okay dang what is going on right now and and this is this is where we're here i i i don't know i i i don't know i i don't know where the defensive person i'm sure a lot of it was gary harris and will barton not having them has to suck i mean it doesn't have to suck it does suck it's it's horrible for you know they're both core members of the team, just simple as that. But I, I did not expect this. Um, I did not expect the defense to just totally throw in the towel and just and just completely give up. And, and that's what and that's what we're seeing. Yeah, you know, in game one, it was kind of like uh, we're going to take away the role man and we're going to take away the um, you know the the role players and their three point shooting and just make Donovan Mitchell beat us and he did uh, they didn't the jazz didn't win the game but he beat them as far as uh, being uh, successful offensively and then in game two 
they uh, you know they tried to take away the the two guys directly involved in the action, whether that's Mitchell or Ingles handling the ball and Gobert rolling. They they would send a third guy over and and stop that. But then all of these role players for the Jazz just hit a bunch of threes. Um, and then in game three, it's like, okay, we'll take away Mitchell and we'll take away the threes. And now you've got Rudy Gobert getting dunk after dunk. Um, so it's like every adjustment they've made, I mean, yes, they're, they're forcing Utah to beat them in a different way, but Utah has been like, well, this is easy. We can, we can beat you any way you want us to beat you. (laughs) Like whatever you want to give us. Uh, it's like, it's like, um, I forget what commentator said it, but how do you want it? Like, you want to come pick and roll? We got you. Want to go strip? I still got you. Want to take the ball off our hands and give it to our, our other players to be playmakers and shooters? We can do that too. Whatever it is, it's, it's not helping y'all. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, and and the the last two games have been quite ugly. And and speaking to you know, I mentioned with that Miami Indiana series where. Uh, Eric Spolstra was very proactive with his playoff rotation, and McMillan's been reactive. You got to say the same about uh, Mike Malone. He's been very reactive. Even after getting blown out in game two, he doesn't make any adjustments for game three, and they get absolutely annihilated. Um, so you, you got to imagine he's going to make an adjustment now, but again, it's probably a game too late, or, a ga- or two games too late. Yeah, um, just a little bit. But. Uh, for me, the, the biggest adjustment that I would make if I'm Denver is you've got these, again, speaking to, you know, I said Miami has a bunch of one-way players. Uh, Denver does as well. If I'm Denver, I'm putting out five-man offensive lineups and five-man defensive lineups. And during the offensive lineups, trying to outscore them. And during the defensive lineups, trying to just grind the game into the dirt. Um, and, and they've got the personnel to do it. You know, I would start with Jamal Murray, Monty Morris, Jokic, Jeremy Grant, and Michael Porter Jr. Start that five, that five person lineup that has shooting all over the place. I've actually been pretty impressed with Jeremy Grant's shooting. Um, and, and just outscore him, you know, uh, run those Murray Jokic pick and rolls and with that lineup on the floor if Utah sends a third guy to stop that action you've actually got enough shooting on the floor to make them pay for that Um, and then come off the bench with the likes of you know bring uh, Millsap off the bench as your backup center you know completely remove Plumlee from the rotation he's terrible put Millsap as your backup uh, backup center then you can play the likes of Tory Craig, P.J. Dozier, you know, one of Murray or Morris, and most likely like a Jeremy Grant. Uh, but but you can throw out a five-man unit that has, you know, at least four decent defenders out there. Um, but, yeah, the, the way they're going now, they're not good offensively or defensively, and that's because... You know, that starting lineup, Millsap is killing them offensively. The the Jazz are just leaving him. And on defense, they're attacking the likes of, of Jokic and, and Michael Porter Jr. There's no lineup that is really good on either end of the floor right now for Denver. No, and, and I think some of those, like you said, they're just not optimizing the best bet that they have. But I think that direct platoon of offense to defense back and forth is why they're, they're not really, I guess that seems too bold for them, but it's like, but the matchup that you have right now is not ideal. It's not something that's gonna that's gonna help. You know what I mean? So where you're at right now, what you described, I think is probably one of their best bets. Even though, even if they do it, I just it's, it's I kind of think it's done. I'm, I'm with 
<laughs> seven of eight from three. I think he hit his first six. Um, yeah, very impressive showing for his first uh, first game back. And also, uh, I was impressed as well. He made a couple of lob passes to Gobert, and it's it's like, oh, he's he's starting to figure out. You know, there was there was a bit of confusion because he had played for so long with Gasol and where he should feed Gobert the basketball. You know, those guys, Gasol and Gobert, are very different offensive players. But it seems like he's starting to figure that out as well. Yeah. It, it took it, it took this to happen. That's what I'm trying to say. It took this to happen for them to all find their their strength. This this is this is what they needed. No, I'm playing. But but really, I, I I um I've been impressed with the fact that it's all coming together for Utah. It, it isn't going. Obviously, there's a, a definite end to this. Without Bogdanovich, it was there's a hard ceiling coming up ahead. But it, it does appear that that hard ceiling will not be uh, against uh, the Nuggets and the way that they've been playing so far. Uh, the way Gobert's been able to impact, the, the total lack of aggressiveness I've seen from Nicole uh, Jokic has been kind of weird and kind of troubling. I mean, the Nuggets do take after their best, you know, most teams take after their best players. And I don't think, like, Jokic has had the, the requisite energy level needed to kind of spur these guys on. Um, but for Utah, I don't want to be overly negative on Denver. For Utah, I think this is a, a strong performance for them coming together. And I'm very encouraged by the way, like you said, Mike Conley not only shot making, but finally after taking, you know, most of the season, and he had some injuries and stuff as well, but getting that chemistry with Gobert and, and hopefully with others that make them more of a, of a versatile offensive unit on that end of the floor, you know, with, with, limited, with limited weapons. Yeah. Another couple of things that have, has, has kind of shocked me in this series. I mean, Denver is playing large lineups without the likes of Gary Harris and Will Barton, and yet they're getting beat on the glass. Explain that to me. Uh, I mean, some of it, I just, I mean, like, for example, playing Jeremy Grant as, as good as a player, I, I'm high on him. I, I think he'll be great, you know, with, with, with the Suns if he gets a free agent or whatever. He's not a great rebounder. And in general, the Nuggets just aren't rebounding well. But, like, some of their guys, personnel-wise, just, if, like, statistically aren't great rebounders. It's kind of weird. Um, even though they should be for the size and, and where they're at, they, they just don't make the most of their opportunities to clean the glass. And that's shown because you're right. You're playing without two guys who, are two of your smaller players, you're putting more size on the floor just out of necessity, and yet that isn't showing itself on the defensive glass side on cleaning the boards in any way. And it, it's kind of shocking, especially when you consider, again, the size that the Nuggets bring to bear. I mean, the, the Nuggets were third in the NBA in offensive rebound percentage at 27.9, and yet they can't they can't get a rebound again, uh, despite going huge against a team that has intentionally chosen this year to go away from the likes of of a two man big lineup and 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 just play Gobert by himself down there. Yeah, it's uh, it's really funny and 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 you know it's it's similar in that whole that OKC Houston series where you wonder like how is Houston out rebounding the Thunder in this? Uh, it's it's a little bit bizarre. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess when you've got a bunch of threes going up, that kind of uh, randomizes the the offensive rebounding chances a little bit with those long bounces. Um, yeah. The the uh, you know the other thing that uh, um, you know again speaking to the fact that like I think they should play Millsap primarily as a backup center is, and I think what could help with that is that they could actually just switch with lineups with Millsap at the five, and I think that could potentially clear up a lot of their defensive issues because no matter what pick and roll coverage they're opting for, Utah is is. Uh, 
is uh, is picking it apart. Um, so if you're you're able to get Plumley off the floor who can't switch and, and put Millsap there, you know maybe again maybe you could uh, limit them a little bit at least for stretches of the games they could you could slow them down. For certain elements, you're right. I mean, that's an idea. I, I guess some of this is much in concept of what they can do, and as much what what do you think they will do? You know, because a lot of that's right. They, uh, the holes that they're giving, the Jazz are taking advantage of at every opportunity. You know what I mean? It's, it's not like they're picking up things that aren't there. They're they're they're, they're open, and, and it's like doors that are open that the Jazz are walking right through. But at least these concepts that you bring to the table are are, are ways the Nuggets can at best counteract that. And I mean, even. They had, I mean, even if that's more scoring, whatever success they had in game one, they didn't stop Utah from scoring. Like you said, uh, like we mentioned, Donovan Mitchell scored 57 and went to overtime. It was like 135 to 125. You don't let a team drop 125 on you in general and just go, wow, you know, our defense is great. But with that being said, they have to tap into whatever success they have, whether that's elite shot making, the personnel change that you described in order to capitalize and get their head back in the series. Because 2-1 isn't really an issue, but 2-1 not even looking close in the last couple of games. That's, that's a concern. Yeah, and the only the only way I see a, a path back for Denver is, you know, maybe they can just have one game here in game four where they just go crazy offensively and win one and hope that at some point Gary Harris comes back and they can insert a guy that can get around a screen <laughs> because like, if uh, if they if they could just add one guy to that rotation that can get around a screen so that their pick and roll defense just isn't immediately you know on the back foot that could be huge even if Gary Harris could give him twenty minutes I think that could be so vital to to how this team plays defense uh, and and competes in this series but yeah I'm I'm with you I think it's just about over. Uh, I, I think we uh, the 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 other thing that uh, I'm going to have to consider pretty heavily this off season when I do my uh, top 30 player rankings is uh, you know I've always had Rudy Gobert around the 15th best player in the NBA for the last three or four years and and I've had Jokic at the you know the bottom end of the top 10 and you got you got to consider flipping that at this point. Yeah, yeah, I mean. This is honestly, it's almost like one of those uh, Akeem Robinson type of playoff series where yeah. just the world of where they are kind of turns on its head. Yeah, and, and Mitchell has, uh, I don't know if this is like a for real, Mitchell has made a huge leap or not, or if this is just he's good against a terrible defense. I guess we'll see in the yeah. next round when, when you if Utah advances. But uh, yeah, he's been great. So yeah, let's uh, let's move on. We got... A couple more series to talk about, and I imagine we're not going to talk about them very long. But, uh, yeah, uh, tell me what your uh, initial thoughts are with the uh, Milwaukee-Orlando matchup with the Bucks up 2-1 in the series after dropping Game 1. I think the Bucks just had to wake up a little bit. Um, Personnel-wise, uh, taking Vucevic out, being one of the main guys who was doing damage, um, and has continued to do so um, even now for the Magic is, is something that, that was great. But... It just came down to Giannis been effective, Chris Middleton giving some more shot making, the Bucks defense being a little better, and maybe some of the shot making that Orlando was taking just kind of falling back down to earth because those guys went supernova in game one, um, above and beyond their own kind of level of play as three point shooters. They don't, they they they've had lineup just by necessity with the absence of you know Aaron Gordon and Jonathan Isaac, um, where they've had to go to more three point shooting lineups or guys who are better at three point. 
on shooters. But in the end, it, it, it didn't take that much for for uh, the Bucks to kind of regain control, and they've done so in a major way. And also, uh, I don't think it's the craziest thing whether or not this uh, financial landscape in free agency for the Magic or the NBA existed that there would be a world where Evan Fournier would not pick up that player option because the dude has just been awful, 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 awful for Orlando in the postseason. And this isn't the first postseason he's been that way for them. Um, and I think having any type of help alongside uh, Booch would, would make this a little bit more competitive. I, I think they had a lot in game one from just great shot-making, guys stepping up, Gary Clark hitting shots, um, James Ennis hitting shots, and that's kind of fallen off in a major way since then. Yeah, I, I didn't give Orlando enough credit going in just because of two things. One, the personnel thing that they've got one of two or three centers in the league that can actually punish that drop-back defensive scheme that the Bucks operate. Um, and, and Vooch has, has, has lit them up for most of the series so far. But then also, you know, Steve Clifford's teams are typically very good in transition defense, and the Bucks' offense is heavily reliant, especially Giannis, on getting transition opportunities. So that game one was kind of a clinic of, oh, those two things coming to bear and and really helping Orlando win that one. And I think, yeah, the difference in, again, because the game can be very simple at times, uh, in game one there were some other guys that hit shots aside from Vucevic, and in games two and three, Vooch has been the only one contributing. Exactly. And mind you, I mean, he's in the guy who I'm, he's moving up several levels for me in terms of just how good the guy's been. I mean, I knew he was solid in general. I knew he was a solid center, you know, good offensive ability and everything. But this series, especially so, being able to do this and being the one consistent source for Orlando this entire time against the Bucks defense, and even though they're getting some shots still has to make them, he's still working to get them. Uh, I, I think it is a major testament to just his, his overall level of play. I would just love to see Orlando basically, um, you know, just uh, run the exact same action over and over again until Milwaukee does something different. And if that means if that means Vucevic takes 43s in the game, I would do it by Orlando. Uh, the, the one thing that I think in, in the last couple of games that has hurt them is the, the guards, especially Foltz, uh, have, have kind of driven into the paint and they're, you already know that they're driving just to just turn around and pass it back to Vucevic. Yeah. Uh, so Milwaukee's able to get back a, a half step quicker. But, you know, if you actually commit to drive and get the ball into the paint and then kick it back out, like, you know, Budenholzer and the Bucks, they haven't made any actual adjustments to that. And, you know, getting setting up Vucevic, who's a near 40% three-point shooter, wide open looks like that's as good of an offensive shot as you're going to get every single possession so just literally do it every time i mean listen as, as funny as that sound i mean i'm not gonna lie i enjoy it like I, that's, that's my method in 2k we're gonna keep doing the same screen and roll action again and again and again until you make some type of adjustment to and you're right the bunch is kind of sad back and said they're shooting will fall back down to earth and, and since game one it has but Vucevic has it and you're right keep using that to your advantage because and right now, it's already as obvious then as it is now that even when you said it, Markel Fultz, Afonia, others penetrate to the lane. They're only doing it really to get the ball back out to Vooch in general. We can see it as clear as day. So if you're going to make your offensive strategy already as obvious as it already is, then you might as well just continue to go back to the one play, the one action, the one system, the one player that has made anything work for Orlando so far, and that is Vooch. And, and you know that it's going to be a shorter series anyway. You know what it's going to be in general, but you might as well 
flex that and get that for all it's worth and force Milwaukee to react to you and not the other way around because that's all that's happened. It's like they went, oh, wow, we got slapped in the mouth. Okay, now we adjusted. And Orlando just kind of said, oh, well, uh, we'll continue to do what we're doing. Uh, Vucevic has been playing well. Um, going to take these shots in the five-game series. <laughs> that's what I'm seeing. Yeah, just spam it to death. I want to see 53-point attempts from Vucevic on the next box score. That would be pretty That would be pretty good. Um, the uh, the Bucks, yeah, like, uh, you know, in, in games two and three, uh, started getting, uh, you know, having a little bit more success in transition, and obviously Giannis played better after that uh, that disappointing game one where he missed a bunch of bunnies, and and in game three as well, Middleton finally got off the snide. He was terrible, just averaging I think eight points a game in the first two, but he finally started knocking down some shots, and and also Bledsoe has started to look better and better. Again, a, a lot of these guys that. Uh, you know, had to leave the bubbler, were injured, and 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 started, uh, you know, and got back into the rotation to start the playoffs. They they've slowly but surely looked better as the games have gone on. They're finding their form, and you said it's it's a trend that has kind of been going on with these players. You mentioned Howard earlier. You mentioning um um Bledsoe now, where it's just getting their legs back under them, catching up game speed wise, you know, adjusting because. For whatever reason they're out, that's a lot of time that you're not, or a period of time that you're not in game action and just finding your speed and going from there. And, and some of this, I mean, a, a lot of people went hyped. I was exact, I was excited by the way Orlando won, but even I knew that that wasn't sustainable. Um, and I think we all knew that, and the Bucks played as if they knew that because now they're kind of getting back. What was worrying me a little bit was Chris Middleton um, until you know today's game three, but he hadn't been what I thought he needed to be. Um, definitely, he was just to get out of this run. I didn't see it as an issue really, but I did see it as something that would come out later not having consistent Chris Middleton. But, yeah, moving on, it was like they, they, they got they got numbers on and they turned the tables, and that's what we seem to be uh, seeing now. It was a, a five-game series, and Orlando did the inaugural, uh, or not the inaugural, but their, uh, their annual steal game one against the top-seeded opponent. Yep, so uh, let's move on to the last series, which is uh, Toronto-Brooklyn. And uh, I do have to admit, I, I, I did watch the first two games in this series, but I did not watch game three. I, I did hear the news that, that Joe Harris was out for the rest of the series for Brooklyn and uh, figured at uh, at 2-0 that this series was uh, done and dusted. Now, I don't know if you caught any of, uh, of Game 3, but uh, um, what has been your overall impression of the uh, the Raptors' play so far? So I, I had to laugh a little bit to myself because I did the exact same thing. I was like, all right, this is all they wrote. Like, <laughs> I did not watch it. I didn't even listen to it on the radio. I just, I just, I just, didn't, I just didn't tune into that one. Um, I figured that bottom line, you know, Toronto would do what they did, which is come together. I was, I was going to try to make it a challenge to see if Pascal Siakam would assert himself because I feel like in later rounds, one guy is going to have to stick out, you know, for those tough possessions. That wasn't going to be Brooklyn, but I feel like this would be a good test of that, um, you know, trying to go that one focal point. So far, it seems like Fred Van Vliet has been the star of the series for Toronto, and that's kind of been my big takeaway. You know, everyone's played solid. OG and LB has been well. Um, but I was looking at something that was just regardless of the quality of the opponent because I felt like Brooklyn was going to play hard, but they're already severely shorthanded as is. And even their reinforcements, I mean, we're talking about Jamal Crawford, were already out to begin with. So I didn't look at it as much as how they would adjust to Brooklyn or how Brooklyn would attack them. It wasn't even the opponent for me. It was really, okay, we see Toronto's going to try some different things. Are they going to try to play through one guy for spurts? I thought they'd be a little more creative with it, to be honest with you, because, you know, Pascal Siakam doesn't have to be that guy in round one, but he will have to be that guy in round three, I think, or at least someone can approximate that Kawhi Leonard kind of crunch time scoring. I don't think that a Galatarian offense, I've been proven wrong before, but I don't think that it'll, it'll go through well you know, later in the rounds when you need one guy to be that clutch shot maker. And whether that is 
Kyle Lowry, whether, you know, everyone wants to make the Pascal Siakam, whether that is Fred Van Vliet, who I don't think so just because of not just, I mean, he has, doesn't have the, quite the guile of Lowry, although he does have quite a bit of it, and I just think finishing ability and everything, but he's someone who's been, I mean, he's been playing well against Brooklyn. He's, he's had some strong games, and his three ball is kind of really connecting consistently now on high volume. Yeah, um, I think most of the Toronto roster has has looked good out there in the series, or yeah. at least the the first two games that I watched. the The one guy I'm a little bit, uh, you know, a, a little bit fearful about is Gasol. I thought he looked a little bit slow, uh, and you know, Brooklyn played those lineups with uh, Lavert and Jared Allen running pick and roll with three shooters around him, and they kind of ran Gasol off the floor. I thought at times. And Toronto was much better when they were able to put Ibaka at the center spot and, and allowed them to switch more of those actions. Um, but uh, yeah, Gasol a little bit of a concern as well. And you know his his two point offensive game has been a problem all season long, and it seems to to still be a bugaboo of his as uh, as we've gotten into the playoffs. Yeah, I, I kind of thought a little bit of him showing his age just a touch. I mean, you know, obviously. Everyone's not going to age at 35 like LeBron, but he has been one that, you know, his defensive uh, ability is still there, I think, the know-how and everything, but the way he's reacted, yeah, he's been burned. And the, the Raptors have gone small. In fact, on that game two when I think they went to Atlanta and played two minutes together in the regular season to really key um, the, the spurt that they took to win the game. And so some of that was, you know, off of uh, Gasol not being effective. I still think, you know, um, in later rounds, uh, maybe not against, uh, maybe someone that, platooned against Giannis or something, not speed where I was just there, but someone with the know-how. You know, he can be effective. Um, I was hoping it would be against Embiid, but it doesn't look like that's going to be the case. So maybe moving forward, you do see the Raptors going, you know, less and less uh, to Gasol and kind of going smaller, where they are a much more dynamic team, if you ask me. Yeah, and especially the way Ibaka has shot the ball this year. He's had a, a terrific season. You know, and, and not saying, you know, Gasol has been has been really good, especially defensively. But, uh, yeah, in certain matchups, not exactly the, the greatest option there. Um, the, the other thing that I think is going to be interesting for the Raptors moving forward is, you know, and we talked about it in the Boston-Philly series and how when Embiid is kind of facing up from 15 feet and out, it's much easier to send help. Um, and I, I think, you know, watching that Toronto-Boston game and the reseeding games and figuring that's going to be the matchup in round two, one of the concerns is when Boston can kind of just switch all of their pick-and-roll actions and Toronto is just doing nothing but attacking from the three-point line, it's going to be difficult. I think one one uh, sort of outlet that they can go to to create some offense in other ways is posting up Siakam, getting him the ball at about 10 feet, um, and, you know, Boston obviously is going to be playing with a wing guarding him, and I think Siakam, a, a solid post player, if he can catch the ball close to the basket, he can he can uh, cause some damage, but that's not something they've done a lot of this season. It really isn't, and honestly, the, the, the Toronto-Boston, you know, impending matchup is going to be very interesting from an X and O's perspective. Just seeing how Toronto has to adapt to Boston, and the fact that you're right—that's something that Toronto hasn't done. But maybe I'm buoyed off of the success that they had with that small ball lineup. That they haven't had a lot of minutes. Do I think when you have the personnel, the know-how, and solid coaching, that yeah, you can try some things that you either didn't have to do or didn't do a lot of, and that you may pull it off reasonably well because you have players who 
just know what role they're playing, you know? And I think with the Toronto team, they have such high IQ basketball players, just from the top down, guys who, who just know where to play that, you know, even playing in as much as a small lineup with players who you don't know, you know, on the court together, you still know their tendencies, still know how to react. Um, maybe, you know, on the fly, having to initiate some offense further out than you would like, you know, that tactical adjustment of posting up Siakam would work. Um, but I think in general, I, I have full faith in, in Toronto of any team right now in the postseason of adjusting seamlessly on the fly uh, to moves made by an opponent. I just think you just have to give them that credit based off the way they played the season, based off the coaching that they've had, and just the, the very uh, different ways of ingenuity that they've showcased over the year and really over the past two seasons. I, I have full confidence in that. Absolutely, and the Hayward absence I think will be huge in that matchup as well. Um, but uh, speaking to Brooklyn, one guy, I mean, obviously Lavert is, is going to be the one everyone's talking about, but the, the guy that I have been super impressed with in this series has been Jared Allen. The guy uh, setting solid screens and then catching the ball on the roll and making the right play, whether that is kicking it to the corner or attacking the rim and dunking. Uh, Jared Allen has been really terrific and I think he has shown that next year when you've got the likes of Kyrie and Durant back and you have a, a lineup with a bunch of shooting and a, and a potential spread pick and roll, that he can be a really good guy as the screen and roll man. Yeah, he has. He, he, he's been one who I, I've liked the way he's played. I, I was going to make a joke saying that you think maybe you should start for DeAndre Jordan next season? But, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's someone who... This has been a showcase for him in terms of, you're right, making plays, finishing decisively, showcasing good hands, being an impact guy on the defensive end, you know, as he's been, just kind of putting it all together in a certain role. Even some hit a mid-range jumper, I think it was a buzzer, but still. Yeah, and switching as well some, and and looking pretty good. Exactly, and just playing as effective as he's been. I like TLC's play. I mentioned that, um, I don't know if it was here, uh, probably mind. I just how well that he's kind of come as someone who couldn't really find a shot. Mind you, he's lost it now coincidentally as I bring it up. But someone who, you know, in the bubble and in general was kind of being a high volume shooter and connecting at a pretty accurate clip. Um, I was impressed by his play and Karis LeVert's playmaking. His shot making has gone down the complete tubes. A lot of that is just Toronto's defense. A lot of that is him not being able to finish very effectively outside of in the paint. And he hasn't been doing that well either. Um, his jump shot, you know, is very iffy comes and goes. But I love some of the he's been making, some of the passes that he's been doing. And, and as a playmaker, yeah, he's racking up the gaudy assists, and, and that's great. How he's doing it and some of the reads I see him making that I'm really encouraged someone who can be, you know, not a primary offensive creator, but a great secondary one. Yep. Um, well, we've been talking about uh, these series for over two hours now, so I think we've, we've gone on long enough, but uh, just wanted to... Uh, <laughs> mention a couple of things before we go. Um, if you haven't checked out uh, my recent article on Rip City Project, I did one on the uh, the Blazers and kind of some of the statistical differences and, and some of the eye test things I've noticed with their play in the bubble compared to prior to the, the shutdown. And then also in the next couple of days, I believe, a uh, an article that I worked on with uh, Stevie Cozens on uh, the top 10 individual seasons in, play, in Blazers history. So uh, keep an eye out for that. And uh, Corbin, you always have stuff going on. Anything you want to plug here before we go? Um, I've done a couple of draft like prospect uh, previews uh, for the Suns on Value of the Suns. I did a Yeke Okongo, uh, yeah, 
I did Patrick Williams. Um, I think I did one on Devin Vassell. I'm, 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 I'm losing it here now. Um, in terms of writing, uh, I, I, I highly second checking yours. In fact, I'm going to get to that as soon as we're done here, just kind of digging those pieces. But a lot of draft-related content uh, we've done on our end, um, or on my end at Dying the Suns, um, including why I feel that the Suns have the brightest future of the lottery teams currently in the uh, currently, you know, just in this recent NBA, um, aside from the Warriors. And um, it wasn't Devin Vassell that's coming. I'm confused. It was Killian Hayes. So uh, I would definitely uh, check those out. And then that's that's really kind of just it. I also apologize to any of you that have been confused at uh, our release schedule on Duncan Dynasty. I know we typically are releasing episodes on Wednesdays, but the fact that the uh, the playoffs this year started on a Monday kind of threw everything out of whack, so it's kind of been on the weekends that have been the best to release episodes. So uh, I assume at some point uh, soon we'll, we'll get back on track doing it typically on Wednesdays, but uh, still trying to bring you at least an episode a week here. But uh, Corbin, again, thanks so much for coming on. This was a lot of fun, and, and thanks for taking the time. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Gary. Always a lot of fun here. Leftovers or... <laughs> The DMV Number 97 Or House cleaning Or Chumba Casino always brings the fun Play over a hundred different games online For free from anywhere You could redeem some serious prizes Chumbacasino.com Live the Chumba life No purchase necessary We're prohibited by law T plus terms and conditions apply See website for details Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com slash internet for details.